Shaken Blake presents Star Wars. Welcome to Shaken Blake, the Blake 7 podcast that's shared between Earth2.net and GeekPlanetOnline.com. My name's Tim Wilson, and I co-host this podcast along with Mr. David Proberts. Hello there, and a happy new year to you all. Quite so. Do you get anything nice for Christmas Day? Oh, lots and lots of lovely things. Such as? Um, well, let me see. Uh, got a couple of Doctor Who DVDs. Got a uh, complete series six, and I got the Mark of the Rani and uh, the Seeds of Doom. Yeah. So hopefully I'll watch those, and maybe I'll uh, spot Derek Southern or you know, one of the Robert Smythe or one of the many other <laughs> luminaries of Doctor Who extradom. Are they definitely in those episodes? I have no idea. <laughs> then uh, here, here's hoping that you spot them. Absolutely. Uh, for my part, I've got uh, the complete series of Randall and Hopkirk Deceased, the Reeves and Mortimer version. Uh-huh. I have uh, the complete series of Firefly. Nice. Uh, which which I, I have watched, but uh, now I own. Excellent. I can definitely call myself a geek. Um, <laughs> after many years of, of falsehoods and lies... And um, I have my uh, uh, most favourite guilty pleasure film of all time on DVD as well. And what would that be? That would be... And, and again, I, I should show shame at this point, but I, I can put forth an argument as to why I like it. But uh, for the meantime, I'll just, I'll just go ahead and say it's, it's um, Wild Wild West... Yeah, well, I quite like Wild Wild West, and I do own a copy. Good. I'm really glad to hear that. Because if someone takes me down, I'm taking you down with me. Fair enough. <laughs> I also got Batman Arkham City for the uh, PC. So I'll be uh, loading that onto my computer at some point. And um, my friend... I say friend. Richard Patterson... Um, <laughs> he who betrayed me and therefore suffered the wrath of a travisogram. Um, yeah. He he uh, tried to placate my wrath by offering me up a DVD called The Trip, uh, starring Steve Coogan and Rob Ryden. I own that as well, and it's very good. That's a bit. I've I know of it. I've just not actually watched it. So um, this will be part of the next episode of Shaken Blake then. <laughs> Excellent. Should we uh, crack on with some email, then? Okay. Right, well, there are two pieces in the uh, Geek Planet inbox. There's uh, some audio feedback for um, Star 1 and for Series 2 as a whole from the orgs. But uh, at the moment, I shall content ourselves with a piece of Mr. Graham Mills, 
first time feedbacker. He says, hello gents. My name is Graham and I am from Kent in South East England and a long time listener to both Bigger on the Inside and For Your Ears Only. Oh, okay. Being born in late 1975, I could recall watching Doctor Who from behind the sofa at a tender age and was aware of this other program on TV at the time called Blake 7. Trouble was, I never actually got round to watch it during the original run. In around 1983, however, the BBC did rerun the program on Saturday afternoons as a rival to Knight Rider. That was being shown on ITV. As Knight Rider was the thing for seven-year-old kids to watch, yeah, right. <laughs> I never got to see Blake 7, but one Saturday afternoon I did watch an episode. Reason was, Thames Television in London would broadcast Knight Rider on a Thursday night, I think. And that was the same episode that was uh, that we TBS viewers in Kent, we would see the following Saturday. And I had watched this said episode at my friend's house, as we could, as her telly could pick up Thames. I won't spoil too much, but the episode of Blake 7 that I watched that Saturday afternoon was from season 4. And my stepdad's dozy daughter-in-law ruined it by saying, Oh, I've seen this one. See her there. She gets killed at the end of the episode. Fast forward nine years to the summer of 1992, and there I was, a 16-year-old boy, doing his GCSEs. One lunchtime, I popped into my local John Menzies store to find a bargain bucket of videos they were trying to sell off cheap. The shop was closing down. And lo and behold, there was a videotape in a cardboard slipcase with the words Blake 7, Project Avalon, Breakdown, No Case, Sale Price £3. I bought said videotape and was then hooked. Only problem was, I could not afford the actual £10.99 proper tapes, as I was only on £3.50 pocket money a week. But, a small video hire shop on the edge of town had all four of the edited BBC compilation tapes for hire, and I know you asked about these a couple of podcasts ago. The first one was called The Beginning, and was just under two hours long. It featured the first ten minutes or so of The Way Back, i.e. we saw Blake meet Foster, and told about his mind blocks, Blake walked back to the city after the massacre and get arrested, then we jumped to him being found guilty. Then the next thing we know, he was a prisoner on board the London. Then what followed was most of Spacefall, Cygnus Alpha and Time Squad, with quite a lot of scenes trimmed and removed. The next video was called Duel, and skipped the web entirely, because it's shit, and was a compilation, <laughs> <laughs> was a compilation of Seekler Cape Destroy, Duel and Project Avalon. In that episode, they cut out the bit where Villa puts on all the heated clothes to teleport down to the surface, so it's not clear why Avon and Callie look at each other and smile before they teleport him down. The next release was called Aurac, and was basically a compilation of Deliverance, Aurac and Redemption. The fourth and final release was called Aftermath, and was a compilation of the first two episodes of Season 3, coupled together with an episode from later in the season, which of course left me confused, as the BBC had decided to skip all of Season 2 apart from the first episode. I've probably waffled on enough now, so I will wind this email up. But just to let you know, I did manage to buy most of the unedited VHS BBC releases during the mid-1990s, and for sentimental reasons, the four edited tapes when the video hire shop closed down, but never did have the entire set, and I put them all in a charity shop sack some years ago. I even sold the Sevenfold Crown and the Cinderton Experiment on eBay, due to my house being overrun with hundreds of sci-fi related videos, tapes and CDs which I never watched anymore. But, listening to your podcast has got me so excited about Blake 7 again, so I've just ordered the Dutch box set from eBay, as I'm not really fussed about the extras on the British DVDs, so I can re-watch the programme again and play along with your great podcasts. 
Thanks, gents. Best wishes, Graham. Thank you very much for that, Graham. It's always heartening to hear people's history with Blake 7. Yes, and uh, Dutch DVDs. That's quite a commitment. <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> interesting to see how they, uh, they edited together those um, feature-length videotapes they did. Mm. And I, I could kind of see the beginning working with just Blake being sort of found convicted and stuck straight on the line and then cutting out the whole political intrigue thing in the middle. Yeah, sure enough. But yes, that's that's my inbox full. Mr. Wilson, anything in uh, in your end? I mean, frankly, you deserve to win this week after your uh, your epics appeal at the end of the last episode. Well, quite. Um, so how how would you describe your inbox as such? Would you say it was two when you combine the organs feedback? Yes, I would describe it as two. In that case, um, score draw. Interesting. Uh, we we I, I have two in my inbox, and uh, the first of of that uh, feedback comes in from none other than the Reverend Peter Organ. Organ. <laughs> now, now. He said, uh, I mean, it, it's fairly brief, and if you want content, then obviously he still sticks with uh, the Geek Planet side. But uh, he has said, I take my crappy cosplay cowboy hat off to you, sir, for that masterpiece of a musical number. Smiley face. God bless Org. So, <laughs> that was... Um, God bless Org. <laughs> That, that was praise for the fact that I did an embarrassing Christmas musical parody. Nothing embarrassing about that at all. That's quality work, sir. <laughs> Thank you very much. I, I, I did appreciate your text. Yes. Uh, <laughs> on hearing it for the first well, time, well, I did immediately text Ian to congratulate him on his genius. No, it, it wasn't just your praise either, was it? Oh, absolutely not. No, I, I ended up listening to it with um, my partner Gillian and uh, Mr. Matt Dillon. Uh, Geek Planet's very own mm. webmaster, and they both really enjoyed it as well. So, kudos to you, sir. And yet, neither uh, sent me an email. <laughs> so they're they're, tr- they're truly committed to the Geek Planet cause. In fairness, they haven't sent me one either. So, <laughs> I should take. No, it no, 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 no. Jillian has sent you two. <laughs> About what eight episodes ago. <laughs> Well, I, I have been listening back um, for, as you know, uh, for every season roundup, I have to play the part of statistician Ian, and, yeah. and um, she did at least send you one email this season, and that's fine. Surely that's what. But one email. <laughs> I don't think it was eight episodes, though. Fair enough. Anyway, with all this talk, it seems to be neglecting the fact that there is another email in your inbox. There's a second email, absolutely. And this is from Frando. Who, oh, Frando! Who, uh, and Frando sent this email on Christmas Day itself. Blimey. Make it the holiest of all emails <laughs> Shake and Blake has received. And he says, Dear Ian and Dave, Having heard you lament at the lack of feedback for your fine podcast, I decided to try 
sorry once again to see uh, to send you some feedback. Speaking as an American who watched this show back in the 80s, I ask the ultimate question. With every failed TV series that made five episodes seemingly available on DVD in the United States of America, why has Blake 7 never been released over here? The fact that many of your listeners cannot actually watch the episodes you are talking about, I suspect has a lot to do with your lack of feedback. Um, I'm sure that's the exact reason, Frando. (laughs) So don't take the lack of feedback personally. It is the lack of access to the source materials that is the problem. Brave heart, guys, Frando. So uh, thank you very much, Frando. And and I am flattered that you consider me your Tegan. (laughs) Lovely. Well, all that aside, should we uh, crack on with the episode? Oh, let's. Unfortunate. You do have a way with words, Supreme Commander. I'm sorry that was unnecessary. Everyone on the Nova Queen died instantly, of course, but it didn't end there. The ship's neutron drive unit broke free, survived the fall through the atmosphere. It went critical just about the time it hit the surface. Ground Zero was slap in the middle of Keldon City. Half the population was killed outright. It was a computer malfunction, presumably. Yes. These things happen, Durkin. They're happening far too often, Supreme Commander. Computer flight coordination is breaking down on 20 different worlds, and the problem is spreading. Are you saying it's a basic design fault? No, that's not what I'm saying. Look. That's the equatorial zone on Palmero. Palmero? Yes, and that is snow you're looking at, Supreme Commander. It'll be some time before they re-establish themselves as the Federation's main producer of tropical fruit. And this? The plains of Sunni mean temperature has gone up by 20 degrees. It hasn't rained anywhere on that planet in 60 days. When it does, the effect will be something like this. The planet Vilka, where it hasn't stopped raining for 60 days. The planet Huron? Carthenis. Climate control has gone disastrously wrong on all the frontier worlds. And it's spreading? Rapidly. Anything else? Isn't that enough? No, it's impossible, Durkin. You mean unthinkable, don't you? Look, everything you've just seen has one common denominator. Computers? Not computers. Computer. Singular. Very singular indeed. Our unbeatable control and coordination center. No. Servalan, by design or accident, Star One is failing. There has to be another explanation. There isn't. And if you want to keep your job, you'll find it. Why won't you face the facts? Because I'm not convinced. And even if I were, there would be nothing I could do about it. Well, surely, under the circumstances, you could get clearance to put a team in? Star One is the most secure installation in the Federation. I know that. Do you know why it's so thoroughly secure? Presumably because knowledge of its location is severely restricted. No. Knowledge of its location is non-existent. Duck him, no one knows where Star One is. No one at all. Save him. Uh, we conclude series two of Blake Seven with Sawan, and uh, this begins with a passenger ship called the Nova Queen uh, phoning in a kind of distress to Keldor Control, 
saying that, hey, we're transporting 4,000 passengers and uh, there is some kind of UFO coming towards us. And Carol Control goes, it's fine, it's fine, it's a, a normal droid kind of ship, you know, it's going to change course any second now, it's fine. And um, ultimately, it's not fine, and the ship doesn't change course, and um, there's a collision. Um, everyone on board the Nova Queen dies instantly. And even worse than that, uh, due to the location in which the crash occurs, uh, the falling debris actually kills half of the city, uh, <laughs> which is immediately below uh, the point of impact, so it's kind of a, a Lockerbie disaster just in space, essentially. And this kind of thing is uh, observed by Servalan and one of her uh, chief commanders called Durkin. And for once, this isn't actually one of Servalan's own machinations. Um, she has actually found out, oh god, this collision actually caused the death of not just the 4,000 people on board for Nova Queen, but half the city uh, underneath the event. And um, it's, it's turned out Servland has actually become a tad paranoid um, because whilst she is aware that there's probably something going on with regards to uh, uh, the chief, computer control system of the Federation, that being Star One, which has been Blake's intent for the majority of this season. Uh, um, she really can't believe that it's actually failing. Not in so far as she can believe that it's actually possible that it could fail, more as the fact that she knows that if if it is failing, there's nothing that the Federation can really do about it, because anyone who knows about Star One um, is probably dead by now, because no one within the Federation any longer knows where it is or how to locate it. So um, she instructs uh, Dirk to try and find some other um, kind of hypothesis as to why... Uh, such problems might be happening because um, it's not so much just the transport pa patterns of ships, it's also to do with the uh, climate controls of other planets because um, heated planets have become cold, um, certain planets have become affected by drought, other planets have been affected by floods and essentially Star One is going haywire. Meanwhile, the Liberator crew are closing in on what they believe to be Star One, basing off the coordinates uh, that was given off the previous episode by Lurgan. And um, there's a degree of doubt as to the veracity of such coordinates because Villa, as much as says, they didn't exactly get their coordinates firsthand, and um, there's very little that's meant to be there, not to mention the fact that this is pretty much on the edge of the universe and everything else is, uh, that is beyond the edge of the universe is called infinity, uh, which apparently no one has ever gone further of. <laughs> Despite the, the general reluctance of 
the crew. Blake actually has an ally in Avon, although Avon's belief in this cause is more that as soon as they get done with Star One, that means that Avon can finally uh, free himself from Blake's crusade. He says, um, as soon as this happens, uh, he's fine to go with Blake to Earth as long as that Blake then disembarks and uh, hands over control of the Liberator to Avon. So, um, so back on the space wheel of Serverland's Space Command, um, she, as much as she says to Durkin that she no longer recognises the authority of, of the Federation President nor the Federation Council, and she has started arresting numerous Federation officials because she's convinced that there's an internal plot against the Federation. And um, uh, she points towards the kind of personnel within uh, the Star One facility. And uh, uh, one of the staff there who have been uh, scrupulously vetted by the Federation's um, top people is uh, a woman called Lorinia, who makes Durkin kind of double-take because... uh, he has had a past relationship with her, and um, as much as he tries to deny it to Servalan, uh, um, she notes, yeah, she she is there, and um, if there is any problem, she's probably going to know what's going to happen there. So Durkin leaves, and Servalan, uh, because uh, it is becoming clear that she is consolidating her power in this time of crisis, she as much as says, I will not be a president of a ruined empire. So it is pretty clear uh, exactly what her intentions are. And uh, we go across to Lorena, who is suspicious of one of the people uh, who is on Star One called Stott. And, and um, while she accuses him, uh, he throws the accusation right back at her and uh, gets everyone else to uh, kind of confront her. Um, And at the moment, we don't really know who's on the right side because she seems to be paranoid and uh, starts orders the other people to go after her. As this is all going on, the Liberated detects what they think to be Star One, and um, as uh, they close in, Stott emphasises the need to catch uh, Lorena. And um, essentially, after Blake deduces that this planet is probably the perfect place for a kind of underground complex, um, Avon draws his attention to the fact that uh, just beyond the planet, but in the cities on the edge of the known galaxy, is uh, a number of um, satellite generators in the adjacent Andromeda galaxy, um, which could be uh, somewhat of a problem. And as they're doing this, uh, Lorena is doing her best to try and uh, evade the capture of uh, uh, her fellow people and uh, as she tricks them to think that she's gone out onto the surface of the planet. Um, she ducks into a closet and finds that um, her colleagues are actually all, all dead in the closet with her, and uh, she's a bit freaked out by this. 
So the Liberator then starts to prepare a ground crew, that ground crew being Blake and Avon and Callie, as it turns out. And they get onto the surface and they nearly come across the of the uh, crew that's uh, looking for Lorania. However, Callie puts her psychic powers to good use to uh, get the boys to kind of find cover and wait as they uh, notice the crew, and uh, they, as a collective, decide to follow them back to the base. And as they get to the base, uh, Blake and Callie, as the Freedom Fighters, decide to march straight into the base, whereas Avon's actually distracted by some falling um, uh, debris along the hill. And Blake and Callie are essentially suddenly ambushed at gunpoint, uh, and Callie warns off Avon, saying it's a trap, stay outside. Um, so he finds cover and uh, tries to get the Liberator crew to beam Blake and Callie back up. However, uh, for whatever reason, they're not able to do it, possibly due to the underground nature of the base. And uh, Jenna then warns Avon the fact that there's going to be a, a kind of a spaceship they don't quite recognise is going to be landing in his general vicinity. So uh, Avon Speedmints is out of the way and uh, finds that the occupier of the ship who's making his way to the entrance of the base is uh, hooded. And Avon goes closer and as the hooded figure tries to uh, enter in the door code, Avon stalks him. And as Avon asks him to um, reveal himself, we see that the cloaked figure is none other than... Cosplay Travis. Hey! (laughs) That is the first time I've heard a yay for Cosplay Travis. (laughs) But... The exchange they have is made of pure awesome. And um, as this is going on, uh, Blake and Kelly are sent, uh, sent to Stott. And uh, Stott seems to have been expecting someone, and Blake spontaneously uh, answers his questions as if um, he is the person that is actually being waited upon. And... Um, this essentially leads to um, the people within the base believing Blake to be Travis. And um, Blake tries his best to uncover as much of the plot as is possible. Um, but before you can really do that, uh, Avon manages to lose Travis at the doorway because he tries to go into the kind of closet to the side of the door and he's actually set upon by... Uh, Lorena, and as he's distracted, uh, Travis gets away. He doesn't just get away, he merrily gets away and just casually flings his cloak towards Avon. And so, Blake's cover story can only go as far as um, it can before the actual Travis, I say the actual Travis, cosplay Travis, shows up on scene and shoots him, and seemingly kills him dead. And reveals himself as being the true Travis as uh, Blake is slumped in the side of the room. And we find out uh, from the engineers within the base that Travis's plan is to 
Um, <laughs> essentially, uh, unblock the safeguards of the um, universe that leads into the Andromeda galaxy that uh, had been detected earlier by Avon and is currently being monitored by Jenna and Villa on board the Liberator. Um, with regards to the forces on the periphery of the colonised universe. And uh, essentially, Travis was going to allow them in, uh, and in part, just allowing the galaxy to, to die at his hand, because he's a utterly nasty human being with a robotic arm. Um, <laughs> however... Um, this is kind of foiled by the fact that Blake hasn't actually been killed by Travis's gun arm, and um, he he takes his revenge by shooting Travis, and uh, he goes to shoot uh, what is now known as to be the replicant, uh, the replicant of uh, uh, oh, what's his name? Stop. Stop. Yes. <laughs> And uh, the other people, um, with with the help of Avon, who was coming with Callie, and uh, they go to check on Blake. And we find out that Blake is alive, and he's murmuring, "Did I kill Travis? Did I kill Travis?" It turns out he hasn't, because Travis has actually started to get up and point his gun arm at uh, the Liberator land crew, and still Avon spins round and shoots. Travis. For some reason, Travis falls forwards rather than backwards and into the energy vortex screaming. And uh, that is probably the death of Travis. Um, it certainly is. To, <laughs> to which Avon responds with, now he is. So um, Blake, realising the larger implications of Travis's plot, says that uh, if Star 1 does blow up, which was my goal throughout the second season. Um, actually, the known galaxy is at threat from the Andromeda galaxy, so we must get rid of all the charges that me and Callie were planting around base. So Avon and Callie uh, run around the base, um, finding the charges and getting them the hell away from the actual base so that they can fling them out of... Um, just onto the surface of the planet. However, Blake has planted an extra on uh, within the base, and he asks Lorena to uh, go and get it. And she does manage to find it. However, the remaining uh, Andromedian aliens who have replicated into the humans that were originally on board Star One uh, confront her, and really doesn't really have a way out. So she decides to um, essentially just take the bomb and walk up to them and allow the bomb to explode. So seemingly Star One actually does explode and that's pretty problematic for the galaxy. Um, however, all of the Liberator crew, uh, crew have beamed back aboard the Liberator and Avon uh, has promised Blake, who is now in the hospital wing, that uh, um, he will stand guard 
uh, by the breach and wait until um, they are reinforced by the Federation because uh, Jenna has decided to inform Serverland of the um, problems that uh, Travis has essentially caused. And so Federation ships will be nearby within three hours, but within those three hours, the Liberator has to stand on guard, on guard by the breach of the, the uh, galaxy wall, and um, as they wait for some action, uh, the last thing we see is Avon ordering the Liberator to fire on the nearest approaching ship. And here endeth Season 2. Indeed. Well, what can I say? But bloody hell! This is the best episode of Blake 7 that I've seen thus far. It really is, isn't it? It's fantastic. Written by Chris Boucher. <laughs> That's the thing. Uh, I've waited this long to actually be given a Chris Boucher episode. And once I guess it, it is perfect. I mean, I know we've sort of like mocked his writing up to now, but by God, he pulls it out of the bag for this one, doesn't he? Absolutely. I mean, even better is the fact that it goes against the fundamental flaw of season two, which we'll get to later. But he gives everyone something to do. He utilises everyone to their strengths. Absolutely, yeah. Everybody is well served in this script. Everyone. I would say even Cosplay Travis gets to be reasonably good here. It's, it's a toss-up between this and Trial. As to how good Cosplay Travis is given. And granted, this is his farewell story. And if we're going to be honest, we're probably not going to be shedding too many tears about that. But... For this one episode, Cosplay Travis not only looks competent, but he looks somewhat ruthless and cold, as the Travis of Season 1 looks. Yeah. It's difficult to know where to begin, really, isn't it? <laughs> That's the part. I'm just going to ask you, where do we start? So... Okay, well, well why, don't we, why don't we start with Serverland? Okay, yeah, sure. Because she does open the episode after the uh, the accident, and it's great to see sort of like Servalan is sort of sort of in denial. I mean, like it's the first time we for a long time we've seen Servalan genuinely concerned. Because most of this series, she's been very much in control of all the situations she's been in and been one step ahead. But she's really unprepared for the possibility that Star One's going to fail and add the implications of that. Yeah, that's. It's it's very interesting watching that because as has been said, Silverland does not need to be a main part of the action for her to still be um, somewhat authoritative and effective. And in here, we see that she's starting to gain power. She is starting to take matters into her own hands so that um, she can address a threat to the Federation. And make no mistake, there is a threat to the Federation. And initially, she doesn't want to believe what it is. I think deep down she knows that Durkin is right, that um, there is something fundamentally wrong with Star One. But um, because no one really knows where it is, uh, the Federation are powerless to do anything about it. So they have to um, uh, kind of um, 
make other plans. And in Servland's case, that is to um, kind of arrest half of the Federation so that she can gain more power for herself. Oh, yeah. I mean, once she collects herself, she essentially stages a coup of the Federation. She's now president of the Federation. Madame President. Yeah. How awesome is that? It's quite awesome. At the same time, it is nice to know that um, she doesn't take the role lightly. She's not doing it just so she can be called Madame President. She, as much as she says, I will not be president of a ruined empire. So she knows that she herself has to put rights um, the big failing within the Federation. Because it's interesting that you know, even though the Federation is essentially a totalitarian regime, it does have a president and a council. It's not a dictatorship. Yeah. But Servalan has turned it into a dictatorship of, you know, of her because she's the only person she trusts to sort the situation out. <laughs> and to be fair, like, the minute she gets the message from Jedha of what the problem is, like, she doesn't question whether the message is genuine or not. She's just like, right, scramble the fleet, send everybody there, sort it out. Especially because um, the message isn't much as addressed from Blake and the Liberator Cream. She doesn't go, oh, well, this could be a trap. She's just like, right, send everyone over there now. Well, also because, I mean, I think by this point she knows Blake well enough and the crew well enough to know that they wouldn't be giving away their position unless it bloody well mattered. Yeah. And also the fact that they're saying they're, they're at Star One explains sort of everything. Despite the fact she doesn't actually know where Star One is. Yes, but then Jenna's told them where that basically told them where it is, because she includes the coordinates in the message. But does she refer to it as Star One? Uh, I don't. I don't know if she she doesn't say to include it in the message, but I'm sure they make it clear. Okay, fair enough. It's got to be said that the real genius of this episode is giving Blake the opportunity to destroy the objective he's been chasing all season, and then getting there and realizing that he can't. Yes. And then, ironically, it gets destroyed anyway. Yeah. Well, it's not, complete, <laughs> not completely destroyed, because presumably, you know, if, if it only took one bomb to destroy it, they wouldn't have planted all the others. So I can only assume it's damaged, but not completely destroyed. Fair enough. I mean, it's certainly not going to do it any favours, but considering how no. many bombs they planted about the place in order to utterly destroy the place, the fact that there was only one left, and it just sort of went off in the middle of the room presumably means it's damaged but not completely destroyed. But yes, I, I think it's absolutely fascinating that, you know, like most other shows would have had Blake finding his objective and being able to destroy it, even if, I mean, at the start of the episode, Callie is very much questioning the, mor the morality of what they're about to do. And frankly, Blake's answer doesn't really inspire confidence. Um, it might be because it's first-person singular, if we're talking about the same line. Yes. Because uh, uh, Blake says it, we have to, have to win because it's the only way that I will know that I was right. So Shkali says, say that you know that you were right. Um, because, I mean, the question that she asks uh, to get that response from Blake is that, you know, how do we know that what we're doing is justified? To which Blake's answer is just, well, it has to be. Otherwise, how else do I know that I was right? Because Kelly is very much bringing up the fact that what if they destroy Star One, it's going to affect sort of you know, millions of lives, which you know we actually see in progress at the start of the episode. 
I mean, everything that's happening because Star One is failing at the start of the episode would have happened if Blake, had, if the Andromedans hadn't been there, and Blake had succeeded in destroying it. If anything, it would have happened a damn sight quicker because it's implied that the Andromedans have been sort of like surreptitiously sabotaging things here and there rather than doing it all at once. Yeah. Whereas had Blake destroyed Star One, everything would have gone to head in a handcart in an instant. <laughs> So it's, it's pretty much uh, the episode that reinforces um, the song It's Better for Devil You Know. <laughs> I suppose so, yes. Yeah, it's it's interesting to see that um, a lot of people's motivations coming to a head. We see sort of Blake's motivation for doing what he's doing. Basically, it's basically ego when he comes down to it. Oh, yeah. Anathicism and ego. But we also see Avon's motivation in going along with it up to now. I mean, it's been, it was hinted at at the start of um, Pressure Point, but here it's very much reinforced that Avon just wants to be done with the whole thing. The way he sees it, if Star One is destroyed, that's Blake One. He can go off and be a revolutionary and wade in blood and do whatever he wants, but he doesn't want to be part of it. He just wants the Liberator to be left alone. Exactly. It's like Avon says, I have a claim on the Liberator. And you, you kind of wonder why. Well, because he wants it and he's harder than everybody else there. Well, so he thinks, anyway. I mean, that wasn't his original intent. And you, you just wonder, oh, oh, all of a sudden you want the Liberator. Because, I mean, Travis has always wanted the Liberator. Serverland's always wanted the Liberator. I, I don't know. I think even as far back as the web, you know, which is shit. But there's that scene at the start where um, Ava wanted to... <laughs> <start. laughs> <laughs> there's that scene where Ava wanted to sell the technology. And Gan says, I don't think... Blake would agree to that, and then Avon says, well, there'll come a time when he's not giving the orders. So he's clearly had designs on taking control yeah. of the Liberator for a long time. But that is very much presupposing that he can uh, convince Blake to let go of the Liberator, because, you know, I mean, to what extent does Avon have a more justified claim to the ship than Blake? Or indeed Jenna? I think it's always been in Avon's head that at some point, if Blake is going to win his war with the Federation, he's going to have to go back to Earth and take command. At which point, right. you know, the question remains what happens to the, li- to the Liberators. Like, yeah, it's always been in Avon's head that at some point Blake is going to have to give up control of the Liberator in order to run things on Earth if he wins. So I think that's been at the back of his mind for a while. Okay. We've certainly seen how long it's been in, in the back of his mind in this series. It's been, it was first expressed in Pressure Point sort of implicitly that he wants the Liberator. And it's very much the reason he sort of rabble-rousing Blake at the start of this episode and telling him to ignore the doubts of everybody else. Yes. Or as he puts it, why are you listening to this rabble, Blake? <laughs> I think everybody does get their chance to shine. I mean, like, like you say, it, like, like Jenna gets to sort of essentially take command of the, of the Liberator while the landing party's down. And she does get, even though she's on the ship, she does get a lot to do. She's not just being a space receptionist. She gets Orak to research the minefield. <laughs> Between her and Villa, they work out why the minefield is there based on what Orak tells them. They discover that the battle fleet is there, and once they discover that the battle fleet is there and that the defences are uh, getting deactivated, she makes the unilateral decision to alert Servalash. She, she's not waiting to get into contact with Blake. She just goes, right, I can't get, in, get hold of Blake. The best thing I can do is warn the Federation that these people are coming, because frankly, this is a bigger problem than the Federation. And that is the sort of the heart of the story, really, that the, the, Blake and the Federation's cause is kind of joined together because there is a bigger enemy. Yeah. The least well-served character here is probably Villa, who gets little to do but sort of whine and moan and panic. But Villa does that in such an entertaining way, it's kind of not a problem. And 
to be honest, that isn't a bad thing. I mean, his character is so established at this point that it doesn't matter that he can be background comic relief. Especially with regards to how much he's been built up within this season. Especially when you consider that it's been largely at the expense of Jenner and Callie. Well, it's good to see common sense prevail, and when they're going on a mission to blow somewhere up, they've taken Callie with them. Absolutely. That is the good thing about... I mean, I as much as made a mistake in my notes, thinking, okay, the boys are going as the ground crew. Oh, no! Villa's not going, and Callie's going in his place. Okay. I'll cross that out. Um, but it makes perfect sense, you know, and it, it's good to see Blake and Callie, you know, working together in such a way. Because, I mean, as soon as they're within... Um, the base, and uh, Blake's ultimately bullshitting his way around, pretending to be Travis, without actually realising that it's Travis he's impersonating. Um, you know, he quickly strategizes with Callie, so that they have something to do at the time, uh, until Travis actually arrives within the base. And it's so good to actually see them work together in that way again, because we don't really get to see that as much anymore. And I think it's, again, testament to this episode that it puts each character in their kind of, um, their comfort zone. You know, it's like what they're best equipped to do. I mean, again, I don't mind the fact that Villa was left aboard the ship and being a kind of cowardly uh, sounding post to Jenna because he is a coward and, you know, he doesn't, he's not needed to open any doors in this base, on this planet. So he should be left on board the Liberator. And I do like the fact that he's used as a foil to Jenna, because, again, those two were in the very first episode together, along with Blake. And you don't really get enough of an interaction between Jenna and Villa. No, I agree. It's really, really well done. And hats off to Boucher for, frankly, an astonishing piece of writing for the episode overall. I mean, he does get some great dialogue scenes in this. I mean, that confrontation between Travis and Avon, I know you're dying to talk about that. Oh, oh God, yes. I mean, this is what I've been wanting since season one. Even if I can't have Stephen Grief in this picture, then at least I got uh, a serious piece of dialogue between Avon and Travis. You know, Travis is kind of at Avon's mercy, but he's not going to admit it, whereas Avon really wants to press upon the fact that he, that Travis is at his mercy, and um, Travis is as cold as cosplay Travis can be, and Avon saying, "Yeah, you know, I'm that kind of guy, so you're going to do what I say." Well, should we talk a little bit about Travis's actual death? Okie dokie. Um, do you want to start, or shall I? <laughs> well, it, it, it's sort of like a sort of a two-pronged thing, really, isn't it? Because Travis obviously gets shot by Blake, and then he's sort of rolling around and going, gets back up again. But then, of all people, it's sort of Avon who delivers the the, uh, coup de grace, as they would say in France. (laughs) Um, I, I suppose about the effectiveness of the guns in general, because, um... In the run-up towards uh, cosplay Travis's death, um, 
he shoots Blake down. And theoretically, we have seen that kill people before. Not just cosplay Travis, but uh, Travis Prime as well. Oh, absolutely, yeah. You know, he's, his finger is the golden gun. <laughs> uh, and yet, Blake can survive that, and, um, I mean, granted, he is mortally wounded, but he does manage to shoot Travis back. It looks like Travis has died, and then he doesn't look quite as affected as uh, the land that is to say, Avon and Callie kind of crap round him just to kind of help him as he's been shot. I'd say, to be fair, it does look like Travis is hitting the shoulder from the back. The just, fake shoulder. Yeah, well, we're just where, for where the sort of, you know, the squib or whatever goes off, it, it does look like it's a shoulder shot. Which you can understand, because Blake, uh, obviously, is wounded, his aim isn't necessarily going to be brilliant. So that you can understand. But Travis having Blake cold, finally having him yeah. in his sights, unprepared... You'd think he'd shoot him in the head, wouldn't you? It's like, this is the moment... Travis has been waiting for. He's got Blake cold. He's got no defence. And he misses. From quite short range. Yeah. But I think he wrote it out in my notes. He's like, uh, Travis misses Blake. Loser. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, the way he reacts to it, it's like, uh, oh, his name is Blake. Well, it was Blake. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, because, I mean, in fairness, Travis does look like a Bond villain. He does a bit, doesn't he? Got a touch of the Largos about him. Yeah, exactly. I was going to say, particularly Largo. Uh, to which I mean, the Bond Largo, rather than the Star City Largo. <laughs> <laughs> Who is the Bond villain, but his boss very clearly is. <laughs> but, I mean, it goes back to it. I mean, um, so, Travis... You know, he has the injured Blake and Avon and Callie have their backs to him to rights. And, yeah, ultimately it's Avon who spins round and kills Travis. And that's not a bad thing. It's a kind of... I like to think of it as a kind of transition in power. Because if you think about... I mean, we end the episode with Avon taking on command of the Liberator. Yeah. Whilst Blake is kind of like sidelined to the, the sick bay. Yeah. Um, I mean, the very end of the episode all pretty much just says, okay, uh, with Blake not in the frame for command, uh, we hand over to Avon. And to be honest, I think that's been the overall theme of uh, season two. Sort of like how Avon's more fit for command than Blake. <laughs> Well, certainly the growth in the authority of Avon. Um, because, I mean, arguably, Avon ha- could could rival Blake within season one, because season one, Blake wasn't nearly as unlikable. But uh, with this season, I mean, I, we'll, we'll get to it as we look back at the season as a whole, but it's, it's uh, essentially Blake 7 boils down to three people. One of whom's Blake, the other one very prominently is Avon, and then you've also got Villa as the comic relief. Yeah. Um, and the end of this episode just serves to show that, right, not J- Jenna's not second in command. You know, she's she's a capable pilot, and she was there since the very first episode. 
but uh, she's a woman. Uh, <laughs> <and> <laughs> a space receptionist at that. So, um, so yes, it will be Avon who uh, temporarily saves the universe from the threat of invasion. Um, well, yeah, you, you would have thought that out of all of them, Jenna's got the most experience as a pilot, so presumably she's seen some space battles and stuff, whereas... You know, Blake's a freedom fighter that does a lot of ground stuff, and Avon is a computer programmer. Neither of which necessarily lend themselves to space warfare tactics. Not necessarily, no. I mean, you could say he's a a strategist, but um, I don't know. I mean, compared to the kind of field experience of Blake, or even Callie, for that matter, um, He'd at least be behind someone in the packing order. Yeah. But I think it's perhaps just the assertiveness of his character. Um, yeah, I mean, arguably aggressive, but certainly assertive. Um, that kind of um, sees him rise into that position. Um, and, you know, if we're going to talk aggressive, he killed Travis. That's true. Uh, I no, mean, by, by I the mean, way, why we're talking about the death of Travis, what was that yeah. thing he fell into? <laughs> <laughs> it seems um, to be there purely for Travis to fall into it. Just to make sure, <laughs> yep, he's definitely dead, look, he's fallen into this swirly thing. Well, it, it wasn't a for wise reference, was it? Yeah, like, um, I didn't even know it was in the room until he fell down it. No. <laughs> Uh, according to Wikipedia, it is an energy vortex. But of course it is. I should have recognised it immediately. <laughs> yeah, you're the sci-fi fan, Dave. <laughs> me, but that, me, I'm no the po- delivering idiot you agreed to do a podcast with. It's like, at uh, no point, does that, like, like Blake's <laughs> never seen it before, at no point does anyone ask, what's that great big wibbly wobbly swirly thing that's down that chimney? <laughs> this is many years before the Moffat. Yes. <laughs> He basically falls down a plot device. <laughs> but, I mean, coming back to the larger point, though, it's it's Avon who kills Travis. Um, and, I mean, granted, we saw at the end of Season 1, it's Avon who shoots off Travis's gun hand. Yeah. And, I mean, he does scream a little, but that might be a bit more in shock, because I believe Travis Prime did have a few more last lines which yeah. he delivered calmly rather than in pain because uh, at the end of the day it's a cybernetic arm yeah. but so he's all like ow that bloody hurts oh that stings <laughs> gonna have... give me some savlon I'm going to have pins and needles now <laughs> <laughs> but um, in a way it kind of ties back to the previous chronological episode whose name escapes me immediately um, oh, well, the keeper. Oh, yeah, that one. And uh, <laughs> that's the kind of regard in which I hold it. Um, yeah, in that episode. Oh, the like, can I just quickly ask? Just quickly ask yeah. a question that we posed in the last episode. Okay. Having seen Star One now, do you now retroactively hate the keeper? I, w- I want to save that until we finish with Star One. Okay. When we're doing Fine. the whole season. Okay, okay. I-, I look forward to it. Although, I will not use the word baby chest. (laughs) (laughs) But, I mean, if we think back to that, it is 
I mean, Avon shows a kind of murderous rage towards Travis, which, you know, as, as I said last month, I, that kind of puzzled me. Not so much that Avon would show that kind of thing. It's just I didn't think it was that personal between um, Avon and Travis. I think Travis has more reason to be pissed off at Avon than Avon does of Travis. Although, admittedly, Travis does want the same thing that Avon ultimately wants, which is for Liberator. Um, but in this case, I mean, it was very much a kind of reaction kind of thing, but at the same time, do you see Blake ultimately killing Travis? Do you think that, had Blake not been as disorientated as he was, would he have purposefully aimed it at Travis's head? And I think again, so. Like, like Avon missed and hit his hand. <laughs> uh, well, I certainly see that, um, that by that point, because obviously Blake's been quite reluctant to kill Travis up to this point, just to try and basically just screw with Travis to say, look, you know, you're not important enough to kill. You don't matter. <laughs> yeah. I'd rather you stayed alive knowing that I could have killed you and chose not to, loser. <laughs> but I, I think having seen the. Uh, the breadth of what Travis is trying to do I think that has definitely put him on the kill list now you know having yeah. realised what Travis is up to and what his ultimate goal is and everything mm. I think that's what and having said that I think it's also a case of once you've been shot and very seriously wounded you tend to take that quite personally and if you have an opportunity to shoot the person <laughs> who did that to you you're probably going to take it that's fair enough wait wasn't Blake initially shot by Travis when uh, you know when Blake shot back and you know destroyed one of his arms and part of his face well they said it was like um, a fight wasn't it yes yes actually yes yeah. he said Blake thought he'd shot him and thought he'd killed him that's right yeah you're yeah. quite right but again uh, yeah, uh, again I mean, that was a life or death situation so ultimately if he's not in that position um he he's not going to kill Travis out of principle. It's just if the the chips are really down and it's him and the other guy, he's going to kill the other guy. I think that's certainly the way it's been played. Every time that Blake has had an opportunity to essentially shoot Travis in cold blood, he hasn't taken it. He's always refused to do it or found some reason not to do it. Like in a gambit. Uh, yeah, yeah. I I think, and I think. Um, this is another thing about Star One, and the reason I, I really think it's the best episode we've seen so far, is that it takes everything we've already established about all the characters, and really plays to their strengths. Like I think, it's known that throughout season two, Blake has steadily grown more and more dickish throughout the throughout the season. Um, <laughs> Ah, uh, the well-known you know, I mean, dickish arc. You, you, you can't deny it. No, it absolutely way. not, no. But but the thing is, by the end of uh, the episode, Blake is noticeably softened. And, I mean, even before he was shot and kind of had to hand over Commander for the Liberator by proxy, I mean, it was over the course of the episode that he grew to realise that, you know, he he got a bit ahead of himself. Because at the beginning of the episode, I mean, he, he as much as... He and Callie have this conversation 
where Kelly's like, you know, I mean, this could be disastrous for all the people who live in the Federation, not just yeah. the and, Federation and itself. As we discussed previously, yeah, and, and Blake's answer doesn't inspire confidence, as we said. And yeah, <laughs> there is that moment when um, they're about to teleport down, and Jenna turns around and says to Avon, uh, sort of look out for Blake's rushing things, he's not giving himself time to think. Then Avon says, Blake yeah. is an idealist, he can't afford to think. <laughs> but then, I mean, as as the episode progresses, um, he realises that because if his actions actually come to fruition, it's going to lead to a full-scale invasion of the galaxy. He's like, oh god, we've, we've, we've got a completely about-face here, you know, and, you know, warn Serverland. Um, I mean, granted, it's Jenna that does that, but um, he's, he's very much of a similar kind of mindset. Oh, absolutely, yeah. He does say we need to warn the Federation. He's quite pragmatic about it. Because, it, again, like we said before, it's a case of, you know, there's a bigger problem. There's a problem That's bigger than the, have... his dispute. Yeah, because we haven't seen pragmatic Blake for most all of this season. I think back to Shadow when he was quite happy to get in bed with organised crime uh, to bring down the liberation and, and risking the, dis- the utter disgust of Gan in the process of doing so and, and now he's just like oh crap um, <laughs> we, we need to about turn on this quick fast but then I suppose it's, um, a, di- it's a different scale isn't it because, yeah, with the case of Star 1, had the Andromedans not been there, I reckon he would have still blown it sky high without any qualms. But the fact that even the people he wants to liberate, you know, even the people he wants to save, yeah, it's not just a case of the good guys or the bad guys. If the Andromedans come into the galaxy, everyone's getting wiped out, universally. Mm. That being said, we haven't... I mean, how much in this episode was actually established about the Andromedans? Uh, other than the fact that they intended to invade and the Federation thought it was a serious enough threat to erect the minefield, we don't really know a whole bunch. Yeah, I mean, that was something that was slightly ringing hollow. The fact that, oh God, Blake is going to put aside his very deep-seated hate of the Federation to about turn and help them out with regards to this oncoming invasion. Uh, without knowing very much about the alien race that would be approaching. But then it's implied that anything if, if a race has sort of you know intergalactic drive then they are going to be probably quite technically advanced and there's a good chance they could outmatch the Federation. Mm. Uh, that, that's fair. At the end of the episode the only advantage the Liberator has is the fact that they're bottlenecking through a small gap in the defence zone. Yeah. Had they all been swamping forward at once, they'd pretty much be screwed. But because they all have to sort of come through... I don't know why I'm miming it. <laughs> but they, <laughs> but they, you, they all... You, you, you were miming that, Dave? Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> but, they're, they're, but they're all sort of coming through one gap. And therefore, they were, go- yeah, they were going to be much more compressed. and was the only advantage the Liberator had. Yeah. So uh, what do we think of some of the sort of supporting characters here? Because we do get a few sort of... Uh, big supporting players. Have we got uh, Durkin, who's uh, yes. Serverland's aide. Yeah. Yes. I, I quite like. I, I think he's yeah, 
a nice character, well played. I like him because he's probably the most assertive of uh, Serverland's kind of. Uh, I hesitate to say supporting characters, but at least um, uh, staff members which he shares scenes with. Yeah. Because we had that absolute wimp. Well, not wimp, but uh, a kind of goody two shoes in seat locate destroy saying, well. I don't fancy serving if if um, Travis is go- Space Commander Travis is going to be given power. Oh, Ray! And ser- S- Serv- yeah. Serverland's lust puppy. Indeed, and, and Serverland is utterly turned off by that as a stroke. Yeah. And then more recently, we have that idiot Jarrier, the yes Irish, the Irish lookalike from Countdown. Not gambit. Um, yeah. Who can't even strap a grenade to a cybernetic arm properly? I mean, what an idiot! I imagine Jario is probably very dead by now after messing oh, that I up. So. <laughs> I'd be surprised if he came back. Put it that way. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, the interesting thing about Durkin, as I say, he stands his ground. And, I mean, uh, the, the Serverland he's playing off against is, I think, this is the most paranoid we've seen Serverland yet, as has been previously established. Yeah. And yet Durkin is kind of smooth enough to make sure that he's not, like, taken away <laughs> <laughs> for uttering his sense Because, I mean, for one thing, he says... Right, I've got to go. I've got to address the president and the council. I no longer recognise the president or the council. Really? <laughs> and you know, he does it in such a way that you know, he he stays within Serverland's confidence um, at the height of her paranoia. I love the wonderfully deadpan way that he walks into deliver his report and starts getting frisked vigorously by two Federation guards. <laughs> And Serverland say, what's your report? He goes, well, I've got to admit, I find that a little bit distracting, Supreme Commander. <laughs> well, that was me when I headed over to Chicago last year. <laughs> what, you were frisked? <laughs> I wasn't frisked, although um, on the way back, I did have to go into one of those controversial all-body scanner things. Oh, right. The one that the Daily Mail really hates, uh, <laughs> because... Its idea is that all airport staff can see you naked or something like that. Something like that, yeah. Something. It was like, I don't know, five seconds. I mean, <laughs> of, of all the kind of inconvenience you can suffer at an airport, I mean, that was, it was pretty low down. Yeah. The other interesting thing about Durkin is that uh, he has a connection to one of the other uh, side characters of the episode. He does indeed. Uh, in in Lorena. And I'm very interested by that. I mean, especially because they don't share any scenes together. No. I mean, it's merely through the acting that there's an, Im- an implied relationship. And you're not given any details into it. Merely Servland's hunch that there was some kind of relationship. Which I really like. Oh yeah, it's I I love the fact that there's this kind of subtlety um, to the relationship because I mean in real life, if someone makes a causal link between one person and another person, 
that they know but don't know that they know each other um, that one person isn't going to start like gushing their life story about how they've known this person for X many years and everything they've ever done we met in the spring of 1789 exactly exactly that wouldn't happen so I'm really glad it didn't happen here because I mean you watch certain programs and it, it does happen and it's not realistic in any way no absolutely right uh, but what did you think of uh, Lorena? Uh, I thought the character was interesting. I've got to admit, maybe not a hundred percent sold on the performance, but I like the—I mean, I like the idea that um, because of her programming, she really wants to tell Avon where, sort of like, because Avon's asking where a certain system's kept or something like that, isn't he? Yeah. And she's trying to tell him, but she can't because her programming's kicking in. Yeah. And I like it even more that uh, Callie was on hand to kind of explain that. Because, I mean, if you forgot about the little fact that she had been programmed, like, to to quite a level, and don't forget, this is the Federation. It They can program you to think that you were sexually abused. By Blake. By Blake, yes. Maybe that's what happens by, if you, you know, break your programming okay. and start one, you suddenly <laughs> get memories of being sexually abused by Blake. The worst thing you could ever want. That'd have shut well, them down, yeah. wouldn't it? <laughs> yes. Do you remember this curly-haired Welshman from your past? <laughs> that would leave psychological scars. Certainly would. That's all I'm saying. But uh, So it was nice that Callie was on hand to explain the fact that, no, this is her programming making her act like this. You know, That and the fact that Avon's about to punch her. And, you know, he has previous... He does have previous in that regard. <laughs> like, the woman's hysterical. <laughs> Slap her. <laughs> You'll have to take me away. I fear I was rather enjoying that. <laughs> 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 what I found interesting about Lorena was that you didn't instantly know which side to take on board Star One. I mean, it was kind of implied because uh, she had a romantic connection with Durkin, who's, and you only really feel sympathetic in that regard because Durkin seems level-headed in comparison to Servalan. But you know, it's it's her accusing an, another staff member of tampering with the equipment, and you think, oh god, that guy's a bastard, and then you find out everyone else suspects her, and you think. Oh crap! It's her. She's the bastard. Um, <laughs> and then you find out all the other people are made out of lettuce. So... <laughs> Welcome so, to Andromeda, uh... where everyone's made of lettuce. <laughs> very much and there's our subtitle for the episode, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> <laughs> kind of reminds me of Troll Two. <laughs> Oh my god! Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, that is the thing, I mean, once... I mean, Lorinda doesn't know that for a fact, but once she starts accidentally or unintentionally bumping off her old crewmates just to find out they're not actually her old crewmates, 
you know, it, it adds an extra dimension and starts, like, fleshing out the kind of side story that uh, Jenna and Villa are kind of perplexed by. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, again, because I, I mean, we've already touched on how all the characters were used, and it was interesting that uh, Jenna and Villa were given that. But I do like the fact that Villa wasn't playing an active part yeah. um, on board Star One, because... He'd have been a liability. Absolutely. There's no other way of saying that. Because, I mean, even when you think that uh, the day is going to be saved and that Callie and Avon are going to find all the charges and get rid of them, only for Blake to have laid a sneaky extra charge, which uh, Lorena goes and finds, and then she's confronted by the last remaining aliens. And as such an explosion does go off in Star 1, leaving its ultimate fate fairly ambivalent. Because, I mean, theoretically, you'd need all the charges to truly blow the thing up. And you have this one charge that does sacrifice Lorena, it sacrifices the rest of these aliens, and probably fucks up Star 1 to an extent. Yeah. But in this episode, we don't actually find out to what extent that is. I did like the fact that they were constantly finding excuses not to have the Andromedans revert to their natural form. <laughs> <laughs> we do this a lot quicker if we were in our natural form. No, no, it will break our conditioning. We can't possibly do that. But, well, yes. why, do you, why do you stay like this? Ah, well, we're learning about you. <laughs> Please, God, just make sure they don't have to turn into their natural <laughs> form. We don't have the budget to, select, to sustain that. We, we couldn't expose ourselves to Lorena. Uh, well, thank God for that. <laughs> because you'd have looked awful. She'll come at us with a with a foot long sub and some pastrami. <laughs> yeah, she she wasn't the most uh, convincing of faces, put it that way. But she does bump a couple off. I mean, she does like shoot one at least, you know, dead. Yeah, and she does. I mean, I I think her conditioning breaks somewhat because she does show remorse, saying, "Oh God, I'm sorry, I killed you," and and then finds out it's an alien. So, well, her finds out it's a lettuce. <laughs> it's a mutant lettuce. It's a mutant lettuce. That's what they are from now on. <laughs> Attack of the killer lettuce. The the ancestors of the decimers. <laughs> and for those of you who don't uh, remember who the Decimers were, uh, they were that very amusing tribe, uh, as uh, seen in the season one episode, <laughs> The Web. <laughs> which is shit. Yes. <laughs> They're going to put that on our gravestones, aren't they? <laughs> Here lieth. Ian J. Wilson, M.A., uh, coiner of Cosplay Travis, the web is shit. <laughs> if somebody could mock that up for us, then we'd be... <laughs> <laughs> I'd, I'd feel quite proud of being buried underneath that. <laughs> well, I suppose we should really talk about the, um, the cliffhanger. Because right what side, a cliffhanger. Yeah. I mean, like, the tension in that. Just yes. like as you see, like the 
it is just model shots, but yeah, the Liberator's slowly crawling towards what the alien invasion fleet, and you can hear in the background how long it's going to take for all the Federation ships to get there. I think the nearest one is like an hour and twenty minutes or something like that, but the rest of them are like three, four hours away. Yeah, it was generally established it would be about three hours until they were properly reinforced. So you got that, yeah, that voiceover over you know, the ship pulling up, and it's like, God, it's really, really tense. And then when Avon utters fire and the credits roll up, you're like, no! <laughs> That's it till 1980, folks. <laughs> Join us then. So you I say can't us, do that I mean... to me. <laughs> it's like five years before I was born. <laughs> yeah, right, young'un. <laughs> I wasn't alive when Blake 7 finished. Yeah, all right. I don't think my parents had even met. No, really, you can shut up any time you like, it's fine. <laughs> I mean, within my own podcast, I think it's alright. I just know never to do that with the Black Dog podcast ever again. <laughs> you're, you're cruising for a similar reaction at this rate. <laughs> That's right. I, I think I was the youngest person at the Black Dog meetup. There might have been one person younger. Possibly. Hey, I'm dummy. I'm I'm 26. You know this. this no, is don't, the don't know you're I've born, man. Don't know you're born. <laughs> it's the oldest I've ever been, Dave. <laughs> well, Dave, before this turns into old man pro, but shakes his fist at the kid. Because <laughs> ultimately, that is what bigger on the inside is. <laughs> uh, should we check out the feedback we have for this episode? From the well, good friends, the Reverend Organ Amory. I think we should. Hello. Hello. Peter and Amory, and uh, we've we've got to Star One. Yay! And season two. Oh, the drama. Yeah. <laughs> oh, the expense. Oh, wait, there is no money left. <laughs> no, the alien fleet is just random objects from the useful drawer. It's Matt Irvin's bit box, isn't it? It just is. Emptied it out and then putting a camera at it and hope. Yeah. <laughs> it is the it is undoubtedly the most crappiest alien fleet seen ever. But can you imagine, you know, they've got to the end of the season, the poor effects guys, and they see in the script, the screen is filled with alien vessels. Like, what? Yeah. We have nothing. Yeah. <laughs> and those, I mean, they, they obviously spent a lot of time and effort on the model shots to open with, you know, the, the Starliner crashing with the other one. Yeah, but it was obvious. It's all very models. wobbly, isn't it? That's yes. a joke. I like proper models. I, 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 I much prefer proper models to CGI, but the problem with proper models is if if they're filmed cheaply, like they are on Black Seven, is they wobble something chronic. <laughs> and those two wobbly spaceships really don't do the, the series any favours, do they? You see, I don't particularly prefer models or CGI. I just think sometimes either of them can look good, and mm. sometimes either of them look shit. But I am aware that obviously at the time of Blake 7, CGI just wasn't available. So you can't expect them to use something that wasn't there. But sometimes you get people going, oh, I really don't like CGI. Why don't they use models? And then you think, yeah, go and watch this episode of Blake 7. <laughs> then you'll understand why sometimes actually CGI makes more sense. Well, we're, we're still on crap things. No one knows where Star 1 is and it's got a fault. Oh dear. <laughs> yeah, that's really clever, that is. Sensible, that, wasn't it? <laughs> oh dear. That's like having, I don't know, you know, the boiler in your house and you you don't know where it is. You know, you've got a heating fault. 
you've got no idea at all where the boiler has been hidden. It's crazy, but never mind. We have the <laughs> we have Callie getting to do stuff. Yep, she uh, goes down on the planet. Yeah, gets to use her telepathy as well. Yep, she's rather nice. And she pegs it with a load of bombs, doesn't she? Yeah. Flings them over the yeah, end. But you do look at her and you think, why, if you know you're going into a quarry, are you wearing mm. high heels? <laughs> Couldn't you run better if you had proper boots on? And then we have, well, well, I think it's fair to say the end of Travis. That's not a spoiler, is it? Because he's quite blatantly done in, isn't he? He is. That um, was cool. And the shot in the back was particularly good, I thought. Yes. Uh, so that was quite impressive. And it was Blake that did the shooting, which I, I couldn't remember if it was Blake or Avon, but it was Blake, wasn't Blake it? Blake who shot him first time, yeah, and then Avon, and then he disappears down there. And then he totters down the, the big hole of doom. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Always dispose of your bad guys by throwing them down a big hole of doom. Yeah. It's the dumb thing. It reminds me of the death of the Emperor. Yeah, exactly, yes. It's got that sort of swirly effect, except a lot cheaper, of course. Well, yeah, but still good, though. <laughs> he's still definitely dead. I still like the fact that he's dead. I also, it has to be said, like the fact that the aliens are so thick that Blake turns up and he goes, which one's your artificial hand? And Blake goes, this one, good, isn't it? And where's your eye patch? He's like, hang on, is he, have you not worked out oh, that this mind. is not Blake? <laughs> oh, never mind, let's no, sorry, carry not on. Travis. yeah. And there's also the bizarre why they haven't converted all the crew. They've, they've got all the base crew except one. Yes. Well, that's kind of asking for trouble, isn't it? So why yes. didn't they didn't do her as well? I don't know. But a bit bonkers. Just a bit. Yes. Uh, but uh, overall, it's quite dramatic stuff. Yeah. Even if it does overreach itself from time to time, as Blake Seven often does. Yeah. And uh, the ending, obviously, is great. Oh, was it a, I'm not sure if it's the best season ending, but it's certainly up there. Yeah, it's re- it's really good ending. Yeah. And. Also, you've had the politics with Serverlan going on throughout the season, mm. and here it finally, Madam President, yeah. yes, it, it it plays out. It's sometimes in the old episode here and there, it's felt like an adult, but actually, it feels like actually the, the fact it's been in all the episodes mm. now is justified because yeah. it's a key part of the final episode of the season. So, yeah. so there we go, dramatic stuff. Well, thank you very much for that. Great mm. stuff. <laughs> I would say, uh, yeah. in defence of the um, Lorena being the only one left that they didn't convert, it's very much sort of an invasion of the body snatchers storyline. So you kind of get the impression they probably would have been doing it sort of one by one rather than showing up and doing everybody at the same time. It would yeah, have been like I, an insidious I, thing. And if, and if that's the way you're doing it, you would invariably end up with, with but one person left behind, as is always happens in these sort of body snatcher type films. As, as you can appreciate, Dave, I've not watched any of these kind of films, but I very much imagine that's how they play out. Well, yes, it is. I'll, I'll lend you my copy of the original Invasion of the Body Snatchers. It's fantastic. Uh, I'll, 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 I'll stick it on the film. Don't worry. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you were to send me anything on DVD, it would have to travel at least 300 miles. <laughs> with the Royal Mail. Do you want to take that risk, Dave? Yeah, you make a good point. (laughs) (laughs) Well, now, before we dip into Season 2 as a whole, we need to cover some departures. Absolutely. Now, we've sort of talked about Cosplay Travis, but I mean, did did you want to elaborate any more on Cosplay Travis now? Obviously, this is his final episode. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Then then carry on, sir. (laughs) Carry on Travis eulogising. The uh, 33rd Carry On film. Um, <laughs> Still funnier than Carry On Columbus. 
I will say this much. Um, as I was saying with Star One, it took everything we knew about the characters from certainly this season, maybe the season beforehand, and played upon their absolute strengths. I think the exact same is true uh, for Cosplay Travis. Because it's fair to say, Dave, we haven't warmed to cosplay Travis as we have the way that we warm to Travis Prime. Absolutely not, no. I mean, he, I he mean, had his the... moments, but I would yeah. say not entirely yeah. Stephen Grief's fault. He's had some wobbly acting moments, to be sure, but it seems that the way that Travis was being written so, had changed. You mean, you, you mean, you mean um, um, Brian Crouch's fault? I do mean Brian Crouch's fault. I do. I do apologise. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, Stephen Grief was awesome as Travis. Stephen Grief was awesome. Yeah. <laughs> but it wasn't Stephen Grief's fault either, to be fair. <laughs> <laughs> he took one look at the scripts and said, "Right, I'm off to have like a bit part in Citizen Smith." <laughs> there were some wobbly acting moments from Croucher, but it just seemed the way that the character was written, even like from his first appearance. In weapon, yeah, yeah, it just, it just seemed completely different to the Travis we'd known before. I think we said uh, during the episode in question, that's episode ten, the two strongest Travis outings, if we uh, cosplay Travis outings, if we're not counting Star One, um, probably both came within episode ten, which yeah. was Pressure Point and Trial. And in Pressure Point, he was written very strongly, and ultimately it was down to him that Gan died. Yeah. In Trial, the... I was about to say say the entire episode. The good half of the episode yeah. revolved around him. And if we consider what happened in the other half of the episode, we're damn lucky. Yeah. <laughs> the other half of the episode because of which we shall not speak. We sh- we sh- it was web-like in quality. <laughs> web That is... <laughs> which is to say, shit. Um, but the thing is, I mean, we rag upon Cosplay Travis's not being very good. And ultimately, I think, in season two, Travis is only ever as good as the material allows him to be. I absolutely do sympathise with Brian Croucher because he had to follow another actor in the role. But on his own merits, he could never lift the character above how it was written. I think had Croucher played Travis from the first series, we'd be a lot more accepting of him. I think Croucher could have made all the good stuff in series one, Travis, work just as well as Stephen Grief did. Well, maybe not just as well, I, but certainly yeah, acceptable. As yeah, yeah probably as well, if if not quite as much. But I mean, the very fact there'd be two seasons of continuity there would have gone a long way to appease certain people. I mean, the sad fact is is that you had Stephen Grief playing Travis in season one. He chose not to return. And in season two, we had a guy who didn't really play it as well as the preceding actor. Um, because I think 
Stephen Grief added a lot to the lines that he was given. I think that's probably fair. Because, I mean, ultimately, with Travis Prime, you still can't escape the fact that in every appearance that he had, apart from perhaps Deliverance, where he was maybe just a uh, a cameo, I mean, Blake ultimately got the better of him and made him look like a fool. But Travis still looked dangerous after this had happened. Yeah. Well, because it was it was never like a categorical outwitting of Travis. It was more just sort of Travis had bad luck, or Blake yeah. had good luck. Yeah. Whereas in season two, there are certain things where you just go, "Oh, for God's sake, Travis, are you really a soldier? Are you yeah, really he's, a he's space just been commander? written as an incompetent buffoon. I mean, in Gambit, that fighting Gambit, when he just gets punched out after about ten seconds of going, Rawr! yeah." It's just embarrassing or, for the character. Or in, you know, my favourite episode from season two, Voice from the Past. Where <laughs> I don't know where this is going. You, you might have detected the odd bit of sarcasm there. Um, <laughs> but, but once we find out Travis is actually in that episode, after 30 minutes of brilliant disguise... Um, <laughs> what does Space Commander Travis do other than briefly threaten whoever's left on the Liberator, teleport down and get captured after shooting a guy that was, wasn't like the villain from the very first episode? I mean, he did you know, stab um, the... he stabbed Legrand's bodyguard in the back, but that kind ha- of happened off screen. Yeah, but I mean, again, that you, you didn't quite realise that was Travis at the time. But, I mean, even with that... I, oh, yeah, it, it's a poor showing. It's still a poor showing for him. And... It's a poor showing. And, I mean, to be honest, I I struggle to believe that Stephen Grief could even save that at that point. But... Yeah. Even so, um, as much as the writing really didn't help um, Brian Croucher out... Um, I mean, I think the fact remains, he just wasn't as good as the guy who came before him, and it's, it's a shame because there were a few episodes where he really did shine. Pressure Point, Trial, and in this one in Star One. Otherwise, he was mediocre at best. Well, the problem was the way the character was used. Like in the first series, he had definite storylines. It wasn't used in like every episode of the series. He had very definite storylines, and then there were other storylines which didn't involve him at all. It involved Federation yeah. people, but didn't involve him at all. Whereas, obviously, yeah. you know, we've we've made a running gag of our sort of like a... <laughs> cosplay Travis. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but that is how it's been presented in the episode. So like, it's meant to be like a big reveal that, oh my god, it's Travis. When you're actually sitting I mean, there going, well, Travis is going to show up any minute. I mean, Voice from the Past is pretty much a Scooby-Doo version of Blake Seven. <laughs> it's old man Travis who used to work for the Federation. Exactly! Exactly! It is exactly that! <laughs> And the, and the fact he hasn't shaved for God knows how long really doesn't help 
dispel that image either. And it, well, I mean, obviously the ultimate Scooby-Doo episode for Travis was um, Hostage. <laughs> no, no. That was Wacky Races. That, yeah, you're quite right, that was Wacky Races, yeah. Or at least uh, Dick Dastardly and his flying machine. But, yeah, catch the pigeon. It does sort of sum up the fact that he's been reduced to sort of moustache-twirling cartoon villainy. Well, series one, uh, he had yeah. real, he had real menace, and he was yeah. like a proper antagonist. Whereas by series two, he's being written as a cartoon villain. It in the second, I mean, not to go back to the, uh, my song last month, but he really is a pantomime character in this season. And yes. not in a not in a good way. No. You know, it's, it's, it's just literally as soon as he steps onto the stage, all the children are going to boo and hiss. Whereas Stephen <laughs> griefs Travis, you know, I I think there'd be some uh, gasps and and shock and horror. You almost want the BBC voiceover man over the end credits to go. And Space Commander Travis can be seen as Abanazo in Aladdin. <laughs> or he, he just randomly show up on the Generation game and said, Yes, I'll be in Pantomime in Crew this year. <laughs> just as a last word on um, Travis, I like the idea of Travis as a character. I really do. But I think by the end of this series, it's clear that. I mean, if it's not clear that Blake is is kind of uh, being overshadowed by the, the kind of rise of Avon, um, it's also clear that Travis is not going to survive another season, just just by the way he's been used in this season. Oh, it was very um, much time for him to go. It was absolutely time for him to go. And I, I, I think his death overall was fitting. Uh, because it takes ultimately it takes both Blake and Avon to take him down um, and, and at least he's set up as a, a really big threat as well considering what he's doing but he isn't just sort of twirling yes, his moustache yeah. and trying to trap them in a room or something he is betraying the entire galaxy exactly he's been you know he's, he's essentially been done over however many times and this is his breaking point, and he's going to do something that's outright evil. So, fuck you, Galaxy! <laughs> With information that even the Federation doesn't have, which is to say the, the coordinates of Star One. Well, like, it does sort of make you wonder, because he was talking about ruling the Federation, like, one episode ago. <laughs> With Servalan. Yeah. But, yeah. but like, he can still have ruled the Federation if he'd have taken over Star 1, but he's like, nah, fuck it, I'll let the aliens in. Well, perhaps he just thought he'd have a better bet with some random aliens than just with Servalan. That's probably fair. And, to be yeah, to be honest, he wouldn't be far wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, yes, so, in a way, it's a shame to see Travis go, but it was absolutely the right time to get rid of him at the same time. I think, had he been used more sparingly throughout this series, he could have been good for another series. Yeah. I, but because he's been used so much... Yeah, I mean, 
He's been used where he hasn't needed to be used. Exactly. I mean, the keeper is a particular example. I mean, he was used to the point where it didn't actually make logical sense for him to actually be proposing an, an another alliance with Serverland. Yeah. And I think that was partially his problem. I think he was perhaps a bit too tied to Serverland. I um, mean, even in the first season, it's like it was rare that you'd have one without the other. If Serverland appears at one point, then you're going to end up with Travis. And I think the problem is there, there was a lot of potential there for sort of a three-way Mexican standoff, almost. The idea of you know, sort yeah. of Travis being a fugitive, Blake being a fugitive. So Travis is pursuing his vendetta against Blake, but he also has a vendetta against Serverland. I think if they'd have used that sparingly and played that out more over the series, it would have made for a much more interesting dynamic. But instead, it's just like, oh no, he's just going to start working for Serverland again, even though you know, the last couple of times she, he tried to do that, she tried to kill him. But oh, that's fine. I mean, that, that's all in the past now, Travis. That's yeah. fine. I mean, I think the first time they really dropped the ball on that was the end of Trial. Because at the end of Trial... I mean, Travis had Serverland exactly where he wanted her, and theoretically could have kidnapped her then and there, you know, to extract more favours or more protection uh, against the Federation. And all of a sudden, I mean, she's not in killer, although she's referred to, but certainly in hostage, she's just like, ah, right, oh, oh Travis is doing something, is he? Oh, there we go. And at the very end of Hostage, after he's been humiliated by his debacle with the Crimos and the old man, Servan's just like, right, come back into my employ. Okay, then. But exactly, it's like, I mean, from Hostage onwards, from Hostage onwards, he's in the majority of the episodes. Um, I mean, apart from Countdown. Uh, he's in every episode from there on in, and arguably, he he doesn't need to be, because no. it just doesn't make make narrative sense. I mean, I I like the fact that ultimately, Travis was used and not forgotten about, but at the same time, I think he was either overused or not kept away from Servland enough. Yeah, he just sort of feels a little bit like a missed opportunity. Yeah, but now he's dead. So we don't have to worry about it anymore. <laughs> Roll on the next two seasons. Well, I'm sure every character will be peachy and in no way annoying from now on in. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I don't know. I haven't, I haven't seen the others. Uh, speaking of departures, this yes. is the last episode where Blake will appear as a regular character. I was tangentially aware of this. And also, well, it's, the la- it's the last episode where Jenna will appear as a regular character. Again, tangentially aware of this. Um, well, as I say, we, we are essentially saying goodbye to two members of the crew here. Do they appear in the uh, series premiere of the next season? No, but they are referred to, and it is, their departure is explained. Right, okay. I will leave that for the yes, for okay. our, our next yep. episode. But yeah, that... Yeah. It is explained and, and wrapped up. They're, they're not just not there anymore. <laughs> it's not. A, I can't believe Blake decided to quit this and retire on this planet here. 
<laughs> no, it, it's not quite like that. But yeah, we yeah. just really, really discussed Blake and Jenna. Who do you want to start with? Um, let's start with Jenna. Okay. Because I know, I know enough about Blake Evans. Now I know that they both come back at least. Jenna once. doesn't. Jenna doesn't. Jenna this doesn't. Is, this is absolutely the last we'll see of Jenna. She she will be mentioned ah. from time to time, but she won't be seen again. Okay. All right. Okay. In which case, I didn't actually know that. But um, in in which case, yes, let's start with Jenna. Well, she was one of the original three. Yeah. In both senses of the original three, she was one of the first three uh, proper cast members in The Way Back, and then she was one of the first three people to step on board uh, the Liberator in Spaceball. And, you know, she made for a very good foil um, to the rest of the cast members. I can completely understand why Sally Nivet decided to leave. Because as yes. we've discussed all throughout this series, that they've just been wasting the female characters. They've got a couple of really interesting, really experienced, you know, in the right area female characters. And yet they keep favouring the Avon Villa Blake triumvirate. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it wouldn't be so bad if it weren't for the fact that this is meant to be a kind of ensemble cast kind of show. Yeah. Um, you know, if if it weren't for the fact that Sally Nivette had always been second build from the very beginning of the series, you know, you'd, you'd think that, you know, it it, it it would be fine that she was perhaps a background character. Well, maybe not fine, but... It's like okay, this this particular story is about this particular combination of the crew, and hey, they are the most popular members. Ah, but Jenna was there from the very beginning. Ah, I mean the thing is, because as has been established amongst the the many TV shows I've not watched, uh, Star Wars. You know how how do they pick the crews for that? Obviously, they pick at least one red shirt, um, and. The star. Wait, sorry, did, what did you say? Did you actually mean Star Trek? Yes. What did I say? Oh, you said Star Wars. Ah, well, there were no red shirts in Star Wars. No, had to be asking the question. Yes, yes. No, I, I know my wars from my Trek. Well, I, I thought you did. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I, I, is it not often the case that they will go with, say, Kirk? Spock and McCoy with a red shirt rather than I don't know, Sulu and Chekhov Yes and no I think with Star Trek it depends on who's right of the episode in some episodes they will beam down with very specific personnel, it'll be the captain and it'll be sort of some expert in a specific part of history or it'll be some like a geologist or and in other episodes it'll just be sort of Kirk, Spock, Bones and a couple of dudes I think they did try to convey that everybody who was going down there had a reason to be down there. Mm. And again, it just feels like such a wasted opportunity for both the female characters. Yeah. When they both had something to bring to the table. Without um, getting too far away from 
Jenna, I think perhaps this says a bit more about uh, season two as it was written as a whole. With regards to season one, I mean, it's, it's arguable as to how much Terry Nation wrote of it, but the fact remains that his name was the writing credit throughout season one. Yeah. And um, with season two, he wrote three episodes? It's something I mean, like that. It's, com- compared to season one, it's a handful. Yeah. I mean, I mean, he wrote very important episodes of season two. He wrote the first one in Redemption. He wrote Gan's Death in Pressure Point. And he wrote... Um, there was one other. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> he, wrote, he wrote one other. Um, and the rest of the writing duties were, were shared out amongst, say, the story editor. Star One, Chris yep. Boucher. Yep. Wow. I got the good Boucher episode. Um, Very much so. Although we're drifting into talking about Series 2 territory here, so I think maybe we should... Okay, okay, well, okay. I'll, go, I'll, go back I'll, to that when we talk about Series 2 as a whole in terms of writers. Okay, well, I'll veer it back towards Chair, but I'll just say, I mean, the whole reason I bring that back up is that I think that because there were multiple writers um, that they didn't perhaps have such a continuity in mind as to rotate out uh, the crew members that were used on each mission in the way that uh, Terry Nation did in series one well I'd say that's a fair comment and especially if you've got writers coming in who've seen the show and like it and like bits of it you know, if all the writers yeah. like like the Avon and Villa characters or whatever, then they're going to want to come in writing for those characters. Absolutely. But, I mean, with Series 1, I mean, granted, there were some episodes where Gan didn't have a lot to do, where Callie didn't have a lot to do, etc., etc. You know, perhaps Avon and Villa might have been used slightly more than some of the rest of the crew. But with Season 1, it wasn't really all that noticeable. With season two, it became very apparent who the characters were gravitating around, and Jenna was not one of those characters, uh, despite the fact she had been there from the beginning. I mean, to whatever extent that she she valued billing, in the fact that she she was like second in the in the title credits, and yeah, I mean that's the thing. I mean, her role was reduced to that of space receptionist. I mean, she spent a number of episodes on board the Liberator, and of those episodes, she didn't do a hell of a lot. Um, but she op- she operated the teleport. Exactly. Uh, I mean, well, someone has to do it. The f- the very fact they've they've actually brought Orak in now, so it doesn't even require a human character to work the teleport anymore. You know, that runs the risk of sidelining them even more. And, um, yeah, I, I don't know, I, I think the character certainly could have done more, but she wasn't perhaps made as interesting as she could have been. Because, I mean, her back history is that she's a smuggler. And this was went in, this was gone into once for, uh, Bounty, Bounty. was it? Yeah. yeah. This got into once, and 
you could easily get at least another one or two episodes out of Jenna's past. Um, but she really wasn't used. So, I mean, the episode where she had the most exposure is when she yep. was like the... <laughs> you know what I'm going with here, don't you, Dave? Yes. You're um, a beautiful woman. I really want to pair bond with you. <laughs> Pair bomb the shit out of your mega. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Um, I mean, I think my, I think the writing was on the wall. I mean, granted, that's the penultimate episode of the series, but. Um, but I think there's yeah, there a couple of moments where you. I mean, you know, I've always joked about um, Sally and I making phone calls to her agent, but I think there are a couple yes. of moments, especially in The Keeper, where you can almost see that oh, I've had enough of this. And yet that's ironic given that that's like the most exposure she was getting for like most of the series. But then considering how she was brought in as like a strong character, not a strong female character, just a strong character. Oh yeah, yeah. And when she does finally get something to do, it's to have lots of people go, oh how beautiful you are, and basically just to be lusted after, which is just so far away from how the character began. I mean, yes, you, you had the sort of uh, Raker being a bit rapey towards her, but that yeah. was sort of a... Uh, but that was part of the plot, you know. It, oh, yeah. That was, I, that was I mean, exploring was... her being the one female prisoner aboard a prison ship. But yeah. for the most part, yeah, it's, it's not just... I mean, like Serverland, she's not a strong f- female character. She's a strong character. Full stop. There's no, you know, yeah. there's no need to bring gender into it. I mean, I was going to reference Spaceful there, and you compare the gender of the very early episodes where she is defying Raker left, right and centre and, you know, she still remains strong, whereas within the Keeper she's got to keep up some kind of act which involves herself kind of like playing about a bit she doesn't stand up to this guy I mean, granted she's not going to physically beat the guy in a fight but, you know there are other ways of being assertive but, I mean, she does have that very good scene with Serverland, but those little scenes just make you think, God, I wish there'd been so much more of this. Because this is what the character can do. I mean, much in the same way that I wanted Avon to interact way more with Travis, I did want Jenna to interact a lot more with Serverland. Because, I mean, as, as you just said, as character types, they are very similar. It's just that one's good, or at the very least, you know, kind of ambivalent, uh, because she, she's a smuggler. Um, yeah. Whereas Servalan, evil. Yes. And it would have made, it would have been great to see them do a lot more than they did, because they had obviously some words off-screen in Pressure Point, and they did have a, a nice scene in The Keeper. Uh, yeah. One of the reasons why I will always rank the keeper above the web, which is shit. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, but I mean, ultimately, she—I I think she was the biggest victim of the kind of writer's love of the Blake Avon Villa kind of triangle. I mean, more so than Callie, because I mean. Callie was introduced four episodes in and 
they haven't done a lot with her, but at the same time, I mean, perhaps it's because she wasn't built up so greatly when she was introduced, but it doesn't feel as disappointing that they don't use her as much. Because at yeah. least they keep her kind of um, professional relationship with Avon ticking over every once in a while to remind yourself that, you know, she can operate on a slightly uh, lower key kind of level. Yeah. So that's what I've got to say about Jenna. Um, any, any last words from you? I just want to say that I think Sally Nybet was a great actress playing the part. I think she was just really short-changed this series and deserved better, frankly. Well, I I will admit to reading a, an... And the thing is, if you want to learn more about Wikipedia... Uh, about Wikipedia... About uh, Blake 7, uh, without being spoiled, don't use Wikipedia, for God's sake. Um... <laughs> The thing is, there is this one page where it has, like, uh, notes about uh, the series production of Blake 7, which isn't on the main page, it's like a, a, a separate page. And um, I think uh, it was... Uh, Sally Novet wanted to leave um, because there was a Royal Shakespeare Company job in the offing. Right. And ultimately she took up that... Whereas uh, Blake, how about this for a segue? Um, uh, Gareth Thomas actually wanted to uh, do well. A lot of like prominent actors within their own kind of either TV series or sitcom want to do, and like direct the odd episodes, just to get some like direction experience under their belt. Um, right. But Gareth Thomas was never allowed to actually direct an episode of Blake Seven. Um, right. So he he too decided he'd he'd move on, and with the way that Star One ends, it's much easier to see how he might be written out than Jenna. Not that yeah. he's obviously wounded, so he's obviously going to die, but the fact that he's been kind of weakened and he has now kind of passed on control of the Liberator, albeit temporarily to Avon it means that you can now start to reposition the series around a different character and only use the other character or certain characters who are on the periphery in kind of guest starring roles so if Blake isn't coming back immediately if Jenna isn't coming back at all then it's kind of alright because of the transition from a couple of focal characters to another focal character, you can still keep the show going. And indeed, we're this is the exact halfway point of Blake Seven as a whole, is it not? It is, yes. Yeah. So, um, and, and you know, that's going to make it very interesting to compare the latter half of the the show's lifespan to the former half, because the former half is obviously Blake Seven, and then the latter half is what Avon's. Band of chums. <laughs> so, I mean, obviously, I've I've still got to see how it plays out, but um, the fact that it's kind of gravitating away from Blake, I get it. Kind of makes sense because 
ultimately, as we've said for this season, Blake has become more and more unlikable. And Star One goes some way to kind of um, redeem him as a human being. Because, you know, ultimately he started off the series as a very sympathetic character. And there were, there were signs of fervour in the first season, but they really came to a head in this season. And, you know, they didn't, they didn't back away from it in Star 1 either. They, they very much used it for the four. The one thing I do wonder about, because I don't know exactly how much he's using a guest capacity from here on in. The show is called Blake 7. Yes. And you have a pixelated screaming head of Gareth Thomas in the opening titles. Yes. I, I wonder to what extent it has the kind of crossover appeal without the lead character, or the character that the show was it was built around. Well, we'll just have to see, won't we? I will have to see, exactly. I, I wasn't expecting you to spoil the, le- the next two series. No. But I, I will say that, as a regular presence, um, I... I do like the character of Blake. I mean, I, I, I have previously called him an asshole, and I, I was justified in calling him that. But I like the idea that there's a protagonist who you can equally like and dislike um, for certain reasons. Because far too often there are TV shows where the lead guy has to be ultra good or ultra cool or ultra flawless in some way and even when he is flawed it's not really their fault something made them like that and with Blake I mean his his character flaws are pretty much his own making yes at the very beginning of the the, the show he is fitted up as a paedophile and that is going to make you rather angry at the people who did that. But before he was initially brainwashed, he always was angry. And um, if nothing else, he is now angry to an extent but where it's going to hurt other people. It's only upon the face of an alien invasion where he decides he's going to scale back a tad. And, you yeah. know, he's, he's not the biggest tactical genius either because one of his missions ultimately resulted in the death of one of his crew. Because he didn't know when to stop. Exactly. And um, he suffered very real consequences from that. And, to be honest, uh, I don't think he he was really properly contrite about how it happened either. Well, not at all, no. I mean, I think it's nice that... I think it explored aspects of sort of fundamentalism which I think had they done it now may have been much more heavy handed yeah well I suppose because, because, of, because of the political time we live in and sort of, yeah, exactly, it, exactly it would have been a more blatant allegory you know yeah, yeah. whereas I mean he kind of explores it relatively subtly I mean like you only get flashes of Blake's fanaticism but when it happens you think oh my god this guy is not right in the head. Well, yeah, his his famous "I've done it" ranting in um, Pressure Point. 
is a prime example of that. And his, his little speech to Callie in Star One as well. You get these little pinpricks of like maybe this guy isn't all there. Let's not forget he uh, uh, commits incest. Yes. <laughs> That's not right. It's a pity that didn't happen in Deliverance, really, because that would have been more. Uh, <laughs> it would have been a more appropriate title. <laughs> Mountain men and incest in an episode that isn't called Deliverance. Uh, you, you, you got your me gas out of that. <laughs> and, I, and I hold it close to my heart. <laughs> D- depends how you sleep. It keeps me warm at night. <laughs> okay, well. <laughs> anything else about Blake? No, not really. Uh, other than the fact that, yeah, you know, obviously the lead character is now gone. So as you say, it's going to be interesting to see how the how the dynamic shifts. Before we wind up on Blake, what do you think of Blake's sort of last line to Avon in Star One, where he says, "Like for what it's worth, I've always trusted you, even from the very beginning." Yes, I take that as being sincere because I think it completes the kind of arc that Blake was on where he starts off as basically good and he descends more and more as he gets more fervorous as a freedom fighter and it's with Star 1 where he kind of picks himself back up when he realises the kind of damage that what he's doing can do and um, you know ultimately he wants to try and um, you know make his peace with Avon uh, because their relationship has never been smooth, put it that way. No. But at the same time, as as pissy as Blake has been towards Avon, and in fairness, uh, vice versa, um, I think Blake has always been somewhat appreciative of what Avon has brought to the Liberator crew. And therefore, you know, even if they're they don't personally get along he at least respects Avon for what he can do and what he believes because ultimately Avon could have betrayed Blake at any number of turns and uh, ultimately doesn't very true in fact he had a couple of opportunities this series and ultimately chose not to yeah so um, should we uh, tell you what before we talk about series 2 as a whole why don't we do the Who count for this episode and sort of put this episode to bed and then we can talk about Series 2 as a whole. Good plan. Okay. Let's bring on the Who count. For Star One, we have David Webb, who played Stott, played Leeson in Colony of Space, from uh, John Pertwee's time. Uh, Gareth Armstrong, who played Parton, was Giuliano in The Mask of Mandragora. Uh, John Brown, who played Durkin, played Antodus in the uh, Peter Cushing Doctor Who and the Daleks film. 
What? That's canon. That's canon, That's... is it? It's being counted. I'm not opening up that can of worms. Okay, yeah, your feature. Because otherwise I'll have, I'll have Org beating on my door with an axe. <laughs> He's a vicious vicar. It, it, it's opening up an old wound, really. Okay, an, an axe wound. Look, if we get into the Peter Cushing movies, it's all going to like spill over into talking about Paul McGann, and the whole thing just turns into a disaster. Okay, okay. Okay, okay so uh, Mark Allington, who's a technician was a guardian in the Ark, a lynch mob member in the Gunfighters, and man in market in Snake Dance. Awesome. Yes. Uh, it's a role he must have coveted. <laughs> uh, Christopher Holmes, who was a technician, <laughs> here we go, played a brother in the Mask of Mandragora, a citizen in Full Circle, and uh, Genie in Time and the Rani. Uh, yeah. Giles Melville, who played a technician, was an elite guard in Genesis of the Daleks, and a Castrovalvan in Castrovalva. Oh, I have that. It's a good story. It, it is. Jeffrey Whiteson, who played a technician, <laughs> was man in market in Snake Dance. Hey! <laughs> there was at least uh, two what? men... That, <laughs> at least two men in the market and a ceremony and a ceremony observer as well as we oh, previously awesome. established. So, what year was um, the Man in Market episode? Uh, Snake Dance. Oh, yeah. that would have been twentieth season. So, I guess we're talking about eighty-two, eighty-three. I guess. Oh, right, a few years later then. Oh, yeah, it'd have to be eighty-three. So it'd be the twentieth anniversary. So yeah, it'd have to be eighty-three. Okay. Finally. Michael Spice, who is the voice of the Nova Queen pilot, played uh, Morbius in The Brain of Morbius, and Wang yeah. Chiang in The Talons of Wang Chiang. Yeah, which brings us, an, brings us an overall who count of eight for Star One. Eight for Star One. So, uh, should we do a little discussing of, uh, of Series Two as a whole? Now, do you want to throw the, uh, throw the statistics up now? Or do you want to do it after we've discussed the uh, season? Let, let, let's discuss the season first. <laughs> let, let's save the stats. Exactly. Good things come to those that wait. Absolutely. As does the statistician Ian Jingle. <laughs> Looking forward to hearing it again. Good, good. So, just to recap, the episodes for Series 2 are Redemption, Shadow, Weapon, Horizon, Pressure Point... Trial, Killer, Hostage, Countdown, Voice from the Past, Gambit, The Keeper, and Star One. What are your high points of this series for you? I think uh, the bookends of the series, uh, that being Redemption as uh, a starting point, and certainly the episode we've just talked about, Star One, were both brilliant, really. Um... Redemption is a great way of kicking off the show, just to remind you of like the the combined strengths of uh, everyone on board the Liberator and um, the capacity for Aurak. Um, and I'm, I'm sure we're going to go into the characters we haven't spoken about over the course of this kind of look back. Um, but briefly, um, 
I ended up not liking Orak at the end of season one. Yes, because I remember you seemed to think he was going to be a bit of a get-out-of-jail-free card for the series. Yeah, a get-out-of-jail card meshed with Snarf and Orko. You know. <laughs> that kind of presence. Um, okay, well, whereas... now having got to the end of series two, we might as well discuss this now while we're talking about it. Right. What, are you, what do you now feel about Orak? Um, I'm really impressed with the kind of um, reserved nature of how the character, I suppose, uh, was used. Because he was kind of the guess out of jail card in Redemption, and then fuck knows what was going on with Orak in Shadow. Oh, God, fuck knows what was going on in Shadow. <laughs> exactly, but we'll get to that. Um, but in general, um, I was pleasantly surprised that he wasn't overused, and in some cases he was used off-screen, you know, without needing to really explain the, the, the concept of the um, character slash device. So, um, no, I've, I've, I've been one round. Um, so there we are. Season 2 makes me care less about Jenna and makes me actually like Orak. That's perhaps a bit backwards, but never mind. Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, but going back to the episode, um, I really did like Redemption. I especially like the fact that the threat wasn't the Federation. Yeah. Uh, the threat were the people who initially built the Liberator, and I like the fact that it was really only Orak that could uh, kind of, kind of um, free the crew from danger, because, I mean, <laughs> bless them. Blake's crew have, on more than one occasion, only just survived encounters with the Federation by the skin of their teeth. So, against a force that are way more competent than the Federation, um, they kind of needed Orak, to be honest. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think it's kind of like a real shame that we don't see the system again. Mm, mm. I'd agree with that, yeah. I think they'd, they'd make a very good sort of secondary ongoing antagonist. Absolutely, yeah. So, yeah, it'd be sort of like something to have, like, balance out with, like, yes, you've got the Federation there, but, yeah, you'd have the system chasing them as well. Because that's the thing about the Federation. I like that there is a big bad, but in some ways I also like it when there is a secondary villain who recurs on and off. You yeah. know, just... I mean, just to give it some variety. Um, for example, I was... I got, Not like in I, Firefly. I was just going to say, um, I was given uh, Firefly as a Christmas present, and, um, I, I mean, I've watched it already... But you do have, like, the overall ruling body as, like, the primary kind of antagonists to, you know, the Firefly crew, uh, just because of the, the Civil War and everything. Uh, and then you have the Reapers. Ooh. And, uh, you know, so at least two threats. And then there are, there are extra threats here and there, like... I was going to mention Niska. <laughs> Don't forget Mark Shepard in a bowler hat. Well, yes. He's a threat. <laughs> to, it's a very threatening fashion. bowler hat. <laughs> but, that's another, but that's another podcast. That'll be Big it Damn is. Heroes in about four years' time. Indeed. Well, we'll get to that, I'm 
Um, <laughs> but uh, the, what was my point? Oh yeah, I mean yes, I mean you want a big bad and you want uh, a secondary big bad and the odd mini villain at the same time. I mean. I can't think of a better series that did this, and this is one of my offbeat uh, examples, Dave, so strap in. Okay, strap again. Than Chip and Dale Rescue Rangers, where the obvious villain was Fat Cat, but then there was also Professor Nimnal, um, and uh, the odd villain uh, after that. Well, you're certainly going to get kudos with Gillian for mentioning Chip and Dale Rescue Rangers. Oh, awesome. Awesome. I was worried about the, the silence. Put it that way. No, no, that's, that's, that's fine. Speaking of what, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Okay, so uh, any other high points during the series? Uh, other, okay, than these, well, other than the bookends? Yes, because uh, obviously this, show, this episode's all, all been about Star One. We've talked about Redemption. Let's let's go back to episode ten. Uh, pressure point in trial. Pressure point especially because that has the, you know, it has a, a kind of sea change for the show as a whole because um, one of the main cast actually dies, and obviously we spoke about it at length during that episode. But it should be reiterated that they did kill off one of the main cast. Granted, not the most important character, but one of the most likable characters. And, you know... It no matter had... what you may think about Pressure Point, it's a game-changing episode. Absolutely. And it has repercussions for at least the episode afterwards. I mean, I think perhaps the fact that it wasn't used slightly more was perhaps a dropped ball on, on their part. But again, various different writers, you know. And also, it's a bit of a different show. I mean, had it been like an American ongoing show, I think it would have been sort of referred to more or made made more of a thing. But it tends yes. to be the way with sort of shows like from this sort of era of television. That, yeah. You know, oh yeah. You, you, I mean, these sort I'm of not, things happen, but then you move on. Yeah, I'm not going to blame uh, Blake Seven for not following the kind of arc structure that we've come to expect <laughs> thirty years on. Um, because that's 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 patently unfair. But having said that, there, there is an arc to this series, certainly from uh, yes. Pressure Point onwards. Absolutely, um, and you know, it, I mean, that comes from smart writing, and you know, just having a general overview of the season. And that, that's not to say that this is the first time it's happened, because obviously, uh, in Doctor Who. Um, there were seasons where there was a, a consistent theme and a consistent arc running through. Yeah. The the most overt is... I, now, granted, <laughs> I'm saying this without having actually watched it, but uh, as a long-time listener to Bigger on the Inside, um, you have the Black Guardian trilogy, yeah. um, you have the Trial of the Time Lord, yeah. and... You have that one John Pertwee series where the master is in every story. <laughs> Plus, you have the uh, the Key to Time series as well. The Key to Time series. There we go. So um, <laughs> <laughs> I knew that. I I, I didn't know that. Um, either way, <laughs> I, either way. I mean, 
it has been done before, but it was by no means, you know, the norm as it is now. Yeah. And to the fact that, to the point where, I mean, some people now kind of regard it as a bit of a detriment. Uh, the fact that every series of, say, New Who, has to have some kind of overarching arc that is yeah. either sat- satisfactorily resolved or or not. Um, in in many ways, so uh, so I, I do like what they were doing with this season, and um, the the loss of Gan, you know, it it, it does hit you in some ways. Um, I, I mentioned trial, and again, I I only mentioned trial because a it kind of follows on the Gan's death aspect. And B, because it makes cosplay Travis look really very good. Or it yeah. at least gives him the spotlight. And it brings back members of the council from the first series. Oh, yeah, um, Rontaine and Burkle. Rontaine and Burkle. Um, and it, two episodes later, they can't actually get the primary antagonist of the very first episode back. They need to completely change the actor. Uh, make him look stupid. <laughs> but I'll, I'll guess on to my worst episodes. Um, what? But what, what, I mean, do you have any others that you particularly highlight, Dave? Oh, Gambit for me. Yes. Still pretty yes, much, pretty much yes. my favourite episode. I mean, yes, I mean, I'd say Redemption's more action packed, Star One's more dramatic, but Gambit's the most fun. It's really very good. And I'd also like a, a brief shout out for Countdown as well. I think Countdown could have been a highlight if they want such stronger episodes elsewhere. I mean, I'll say overall the series is very strong. Um, I, I think we've had a very strong series here. I disagree slightly. I think there are very strong episodes within, but I find the season as a whole quite uneven. Oh, I would say it's uneven, but I, I think what I say even the weaker episodes, you know, aren't the web. That's true. I think we've both had one episode that we've both truly despised. And it's been different episodes. I'll allow you to go first. Well, for me, it's The Keeper. Shadow comes in a very close second, just for it being impenetrable arse. But (laughs) um, everything about The Keeper just drives me up the wall. Maybe it's just an irrational reaction to it on my part, but yeah, I just... It may not be the worst episode, but it's my least favourite. Well, I I think you said it's because it was sandwiched between two really very strong episodes. Yeah. And because you saw it as kind of, as part of this arc, um, as they're looking for the next Star 1, that this just, like, ground things to a halt. Like, unnecessarily. And, I mean, that's looking at at it from a series perspective as a whole. Yeah. Because, I mean, I didn't... I, I, I didn't think The Keeper was good, but I really didn't mind it very much. I mean, I think it had aspects of uh, Season 1 to a large degree, um, to the extent where, okay, there was some corny overacting, and there was some pretty poor dialogue, and why the hell is Travis with Servalan again? In fact, what the hell is yeah. Travis doing in this episode at all? Um, but, I mean, otherwise, 
as a kind of goth referencing romp I didn't mind it as much voice from the past on the other hand <laughs> dear god you weren't a fan were you how can anyone be a fan of that <laughs> was a, 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 the thing was because I um, to, to compose the stats uh, for the statistician Ian segment uh, yeah. I was listening to like the past three or four episodes as I made my way back from Derby to Newcastle, and um, and you were say, "Oh, I, I'm I'm very ambivalent towards this episode," and I'm like, "What? How can you be ambivalent <laughs> towards this episode? It's baby chest." This episode. <laughs> It's just that, I mean, if there was one terrible character, I could forgive it. Voice from the past, there are two terrible characters. Or at least one and a half terrible characters. But that, that, that's enough. Yeah, <laughs> It is enough. Governor Legrand and Chevan. I don't care <laughs> if Chevan was ultimately a disguise... That was put before me as a character for half of the episode. <laughs> you sound like a dissatisfied character, like a customer at a restaurant. This has been put before me as a meal. I don't care if it's a yeah. joke. I don't it's... care if it's a dishcloth. It's been put before me as a meal, and as a meal, it is unsatisfactory. I don't care if I didn't pay anything to watch this episode. <laughs> I feel like I should be getting my money back. I did... Oh, it was... It was a rubbish episode. It really was. I mean, Shadow, I could at least garner what was going on in the first half, which is kind of what I said for the web. And I'm not going to turn around and say, actually, the web is better than Voice from the Past, because there were still things I liked from Voice from the Past. Uh, I liked Avon and Callie's partnership. That's it. Um, but Serverland oh, was good. Serverland was good in it as well. Um, but ultimately, I it, as I say, I think it might no. be fair to say that yeah. um, while we both have different worst episodes, I think our second worst episode for both of us is probably Shadow. Yes, and that's because it was incomprehensible. <laughs> Was, Which I suppose, as, as, in, many, in many ways, kind of makes Shadow worse. <laughs> While we both disagree on the relative merits of the worst episode, we both agree that Shadow is definitely impenetrable. Uh, Voice from the Past didn't have Villa getting laid in a brothel. <laughs> Off screen. Off screen. Okay. That Actually, was no, I, I, tell, I tell the lie. <laughs> it's like. Villa quite obviously receiving a blowjob while talking to Callie on the um, communicator. That's what we decided, wasn't it? That is what we, as two grown men, uh, decided to... Capable of reading subtext. Exactly. (laughs) Well, this is what this deep subtext means, oh, listeners. (laughs) Listen to us, your guardians of all things Blake 7. We have the inside track. Oh yes. <laughs> I mean, yeah, um, the thing about Shadow 
was just that it tried to do too many things at once. And it did feel like several curtailed ideas sort of slapped together to make a script. I I literally wrote in my notes, I have no idea what the fuck is going on here. Um, and I was so very glad it fell to you to... Re- in fact, you had, like, all of the bad episodes to recap in this season. I had all the confusing ones, certainly. Yeah. Because the Keeper... For, for all its faults, wasn't exactly confusing. No. No. Apart from why Travis was back with Serplan. But that's more confusing on a philosophical level, rather than... Exactly. <laughs> rather than, wait, Callie's inside Orac? And he's running down the same corridor three times, and has now gone yeah. small, and now that they have a pet cactus thing that <laughs> you get drugs out of... And there's a Bond villain and a bloke called Largo, and everything's a bit rubbish. Yeah. But hey, Callie had something to do. <laughs> now, I think for this series, we do have to have a nod to a couple of the real standout characters that we had this series. Right, so? I mean, certainly Carnell in West. <laughs> I knew definitely deserves a hat tip. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) of being pure cape wearing awesome. And we should also add to that uh, Del Grant from Countdown, yes, awesome mercenary who really should have been part of the Liberator crew. He should have taken over from Blake and just like shut down the Federation in a week. It would have been a really yeah. short show. It would have been like two episodes. Yeah, that's done. I'm in charge now. <laughs> Grunts. Everyone carry seven. on with what you're doing. Uh, also, I think uh, Krantor from Gambit. Yes, absolutely. You, the... you can't really forget Krantor, can you? No, he, he lingers on the mind. And, and indeed for Clit. I'm sorry, for Clit. <laughs> <laughs> it's one for you, Orgs. There you go. <laughs> Thank God for that explicit racing. <laughs> <laughs> right, so, well, in fact, speaking of the orgs, should we right. listen to their... Uh, they've sent us a bit, of a bit of an overview for Series 2 as well, so should we see what they have to say? Oh, why not? So just a few words then on Season 2. Yep. And what we think of it. Cosplay, Travis, was shit, <laughs> and I'm glad he's dead. Yeah, let's get that out of us. It's <laughs> it is such a shame. It is such a shame because um, season one, Travis, is so brilliant. Good. We yeah. wouldn't have been whining and bitching this much had he not been such a well portrayed character in season one. And then to see him go from that to yeah. screaming, ranting, and raving. I mean, that yeah, undoubtedly is my major problem with season two. Is, is Travis? It's just so so disappointing. And and you just know the season would be even even better with a you know with proper Stephen Grief. Yeah. yeah. But generally, I actually prefer season two to season one. Oh, no, I don't. Do you not? Oh, we'll have a fight about that in a minute. <laughs> I'll give my reasons for preferring it, and then we'll, you know, we'll okay. duke it out with giant cotton buds and the Star Trek music, OK? OK. Who's going to put the crocodile mask on? Yeah, uh, that'll be me again, I expect. Okay. But anyway, let's not go into our sexual kinky life. Um... <laughs> <laughs> 
The reason why I prefer season two is because there are different writers. So it's, there's a lot more variety between the stories. I, I sometimes find myself in season one, Terry Nation's writing starts out really well, clearly pouring his all into it. But after a while, it gets very formulaic and disappointing. I mean, there are some disappointing things about season two. We've already mentioned Travis, but I, sp- I suppose the other thing is the use of the female characters is very disappointing as well. And and I think that's possibly something Terry Nation had more of a handle on than than some of the new newer writers did. But with the newer writers, you get different sorts of stories. And yes, some of them are, are odd to say the least. <laughs> but I I like them. I like the oddness. I like the fact that you just don't know what what to expect from episode to episode. So yes, that's why I prefer season two. Well, season two does contain my favourite episode because mm-hmm. I love Gambit. Yes, but it for me a key part. I, I I just as a female viewer find watching season two as a whole very frustrating because two of the characters actually, although she isn't always how can I put this? It's not that she's not always played to her best because that implying the actress. She's not her attributes, her telepathy aren't always used as much as you hope they would be. But as a character, I find Callie really interesting, and Jenna is interesting as well. Mm. And in season two, they are seriously underused. And yes, I like Avon, obviously, for now. But it's the consistency of season one I prefer over the randomness of season two. Because you've got Gambit, and then it's followed by that gobshite one, the name of which I can't even remember. I prefer season one because of the consistency... Mm-hmm. because of Travis, because of the female characters. Yeah. But I do recognise that it contains the web, which <laughs> is still shit. OK. Well, they're all fair points. I just think that the, the quality of some of the episodes in season two is, is better. I like the fact that Blake is more driven and, and almost anti-hero at times. Because you see, that like, annoys me. I just want to smash his face in. No, I don't that, understand I think why that's half realistic. the rest of the crew is still I, I think a lot of the great sort of freedom fighters would have, been, would have been really irritating people to be around. I think that's quite realistic. He's not, you know, your season one, he's quite often portrayed as your goody-goody hero with no great sort of downside to him. Whereas in season two, you're looking at him not as an idealised leader of the revolution, but actually as what a revolutionary, a driven, at times too driven and focused man can be like, uh, ignoring the needs of others. And of course, you don't forget season two, we have Gan croaking him. There's another reason why I prefer season one. But also, <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> the, 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 what you were saying about Blake actually... It's not directly, but indirectly plays into another reason why I prefer season one over season two. Mm -hmm. And that is during season one, because not a lot has happened yet, not a lot of time has passed, you can understand why Avon is still there. After Blake goes on his, I'm going to leave you on alone with the planet with a woman with a lisp in a silly costume thing. (laughs) And supposedly he apologises. But then he still fucks up, particularly that episode, the name of which I can't remember because I can't remember episode names, where they end up in the cinema and he's all been taken over by mind control. Oh, no, that's that's my pers- personal favourite of season two with Pike. Yeah, Shiva. Shiva. Right, yes. well, that episode, yeah. the fact that after that episode has happened, <laughs> Avon is still there, to me, seriously denigrates the character of Avon. He should have either fucked off or shot Blake well, in the Well, you head. can say that, but of course in the, the, the last episode of season two, you've got he's, he's waiting around for the ship, basically, and he can see that at some point or other, Blake is going to completely lose it. Hopefully. But he just did shoot yeah. the fucker and make <laughs> off with the ship. You've gone, how can you have been fooled by that twatting bandages with googly eyes? I've had enough. Bang. Liberate his mind. Way. Well, again, slightly valid point, but I still prefer season two. 
You are entitled to prefer season two, but season one is better. It's not, clearly, but there we go. Yes, it is! Because okay. I said so. Right, go on, mask on. <laughs> well, it's, it's all kicked off at the vicarage. <laughs> How does it just? <laughs> My, well, um... Well, I hope to hear from you for the next episode, if there's any survivors of that battle. I mean, you, may just be, you may just be hearing from one of them. So that Anne-Marie yes. stood over the bloodied corpse of her former husband. <laughs> Would that make him a corpse? Oh, Never mind. Because <laughs> uh. I've seen on their Twitter feed, they, they call their dog their dog. That's funny. Yes. <laughs> it is funny. I know. I wasn't being sarcastic. I genuinely. Cheated. I know you weren't. It is funny. I, it's comedy I, gold. I know. It's just the in, the internet's very not very good at picking up on nuance. Put it that way. <laughs> Bloody internet. I know. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I think it's interesting. See, they for, for the most part they sort of line up with what we think about it, really. Pretty Far much. A few sort of uh, disagreement about um, episode titles. Although I'm quite happy to adopt the title of that gobshite one for the keeper. <laughs> that, that 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 may be what I now title the keeper from now on. It should be like, henceforth referred to as the gobshite one. So in the same way that the web is shit. <laughs> so the keeper uh, is gobshite. The keeper is that gobshite one. Yes. <laughs> Hairbond that episode. <laughs> well, I think that leaves us with some statistics. Ah, play the music. Statistician Ian. He's counting. He's listing. Statistician Ian. The bracelets. The who counts. Statistician Ian. Feedback for the feedback war. Statistician Ian on the so, statistics. For this section, yes. I will hand over to our very own Statistician Ian. Hello, listeners. Um, there's obviously no difference now, apart from the fact that I'm wearing a lab coat and goggles. Um, <laughs> Why are you dressed as Dr. Horrible? <laughs> that was a really weird thing about going home for Christmas. Uh, both my brother and sister had been caught up in the cult of uh, Professor Brian Cox. And they're going, they're uh-huh. going to be, uh, which, which of his shows do you like the best, Ian? All right, I've not watched any of his stuff. You've what? You've never watched <laughs> Professor Brian Cox? No. We love the Cox. We can't get enough <laughs> of Cox. We crave Cox day and night. Uh, possibly my sister, but uh... <laughs> anyway, um... S- statistics, right? Okay. Statistics. Statistics. Let's start with the highest numbers, uh, which okay. is the the who count. Uh, for season one, we had a who count of forty-seven and a half, thanks to uh, Jan Chapel's questionable who count entry. Yes, I, I remember it well. Now, because you have uh, found out how prominent the extras have been, Dave, 
Yes, because I started using IMDb. Because you started using IMDb. And I didn't, where... I didn't realise the show was on IMDb, and then I started using <laughs> IMDb, and oh, look, if I could be bothered, I'd go back and retroactively do season one again, but I really I, I, can't I was ask. just going to say, I mean, perhaps we should reevaluate season one now. If, 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 if you want to go back and do season one, you be my guest. I have no problem with you doing that, but I'm not doing it. So season one stays at 47. <laughs> People. And season two, we have a who count of 87. Nice. Uh, the highest of which be- being Gambits, in which we had a who count of 16. Which, which is now the gold standard to beat, isn't it? By a long way. <laughs> the, the previous record was set the previous uh, episode with Countdown, which was 9. Because the most that there ever was in season one was six and a half. <laughs> you blasted through that glass ceiling. <laughs> that's it. That's the one we lumped in all of the main casting. But yes. that's that's as it may be. So a who count for season two of eighty-seven. Now, yes, uh, season one had a. <laughs> We had a bracelet count of 18, and um, we haven't had nearly as many this season. In fact, it the total's actually halved to nine. And uh, the main episode in which bracelets were lost was uh, Pressure Point, in which four went astray. Well, it does, <laughs> doesn't it? Although... Hotly on its heels was um, that voice from the past episode um, in which three bracelets went missing. One being Travis, one being Legrand, and the other being Van Glynd, was it? Yes. I don't care, I hate this episode. Uh, So, uh, So, Over two series, that means we've lost 27 bracelets then. Uh, exactly right, yes. It's careless, really, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it is. It is indeed. So, what we've all been waiting for now, uh, the results of the feedback war, and I'll just go ahead and say it. D- despite yeah. my brilliant song, Earth 2 has not beaten Geek Planet once over the course of Season 2. There have been a couple um, of draws. We've had two draws, literally a yep. couple of draws. Um, this episode <laughs> and episode 11, The Killer and Hostage, uh, in which it was two all. But um, ultimately, uh, Earth2.net have uh, amassed a total of eight emails, which is down on a third on seasons one's 12. Whereas uh, Geek Planet got 15 emails, which is one up on season one's 14. Excellent work, Geek Planet. Yes, excellent work, Geek Planet. I hate you. <laughs> I hate you all. Well, what we need to do is, like, uh, who was it who sent us a feedback uh, last month saying they bought Blake 7 at a convention? 
um, you'd be asking me to go back into my inbox. Whoever that was, and, and I'm so sorry that on, on, on the spur of the moment we can't remember who sent it, but whoever that guy was, we need to go out and lend that to everybody else who <laughs> listens it? to us everybody in America. Everybody else. All of them. All that, of them. Either that, that or just invite all of them to your house. Exactly. Invite, invite the other two of them to your house. <laughs> invite them round for a weekend's DVD watching and play yep. nothing but Blake 7. Nothing but Blake 7. Thank you. All Blakes, all the time. <laughs> so that does it from me. Well, thank you very much, Statistician Ian. Not a problem, Dave. I will now <laughs> go away and uh, call Ian back to the recording. Because <laughs> apparently we've decided you're two separate people. Exactly. <laughs> Quick, go off, Statistician Ian, and return okay. regular Ian. Excelsior! <laughs> oh, hi, Dave. How are you? Oh, very well. Statistician Ian was just here. You missed him. Was, was he? Yeah. I've oh, never but... seen you both in the room at the same time. <laughs> One of these days. <laughs> you've met me once. You, you've, barely seen me, you've barely seen me with anyone in the world. <laughs> For all you know, I could be Batman. You could be Batman. You I absolutely could. could. <laughs> Beware the Ginger Knight. <laughs> the Auburn to... Avenger. <laughs> we need to wrap this up. Yeah, we do. We um, do. <laughs> right, so uh, Mr. Wilson. Yes. Anything new going on over at Earth2.net? Well, uh, yeah, a few things. Um, let's start with the fact that, um, as previously mentioned, uh, Preston has had to bow out of uh, Big Damn Heroes. And uh, because it's a Whedon podcast, it doesn't really mean anything bad that uh, there's been a mid-season change of cast. And uh, stepping yes. into his sizable shoes, because he's a big man, is Will Ackerman, uh, who has previous experience with podcasting with Hannah because uh, the two of them do the Hey Girlfriend segment of Earth2.net, the show, which appeals to... You don't um, sell that especially well, it has to be said. In fairness, um, I'm very heterosexual, so I can't really do it properly. <laughs> I can't, I can't really do it proper justice. The words are being repelled by your heterosexuality. <laughs> well, I went to a private school. I have to be very heterosexual. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. Nothing but heterosexuality exists in private schools. Exactly. It's all heterosexual activity. You, you know those 26 episodes I did with a damn? You know. <laughs> nothing gay about that. No, um, no. Anyway, um, <laughs> so they, they do a very entertaining segment for Earth 2 on its own, and um, the first episode of the two of them combined for Big Damn Heroes uh, has very recently gone out as of time of recording. Um, so um, essentially they're just 
picking back where they left off at the end of November, and uh, Buffy and Angel continues to be covered. I should also say that uh, this month of January uh, is normally the month where the ballot goes out for the annual Earth 2 Main Page Awards, uh, which rewards uh, the writing and podcasting efforts of uh, the staff of Earth 2, which Dave technically counts as. Um, and so, if you want to vote for uh, Shake and Blake for anything, um, then uh, keep your ears and to the God ground. knows why would you? Well, I, I don't. Know, I, I think you should stick it to all the other podcasts, uh, which clearly don't listen to ours. <laughs> vote not just for this podcast, but also vote for me and vote for Dave. And uh, I mean. Admittedly, more me, because uh, I do more for the site. But uh, you know, there are geek planet people listening to this, obviously, as as the email count would show. Um, so, well, I, I uh, certainly wouldn't want them showing up and sort of <laughs> like block voting in any way, shape, or form. Not that that will happen in a million years, <laughs> but if it did happen, I would be unhappy with it. Would you, Dave? I would, yes. Would you, Dave? Yes, I would. <laughs> Should I just keep shifting my vocal intonation until you actually <laughs> say something else? <laughs> or you can just change the subject. It's entirely up to you. <laughs> Point taken. Um, so, <laughs> so, um, we kind of started Jake and Blake at precisely the wrong time because we had like one episode out. For, for new podcast, we, yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we had no time to... So we didn't really we don't really qualify for new podcast um, this year. Possibly not. Although the fact that it was only one month before the new year might actually work for us. We don't know. Although that being said, best new podcast last year was won by the Tranquil Tirades, which, in fairness, is a brilliant podcast, but also debuted in December 2010. So ah. um, who knows? Perhaps it only bans them from being voted for again. Perhaps it doesn't. The only way we can tell for sure <laughs> well, is if it, it was the only the It's the only category we had an even vague shot in. <laughs> Purely by dint of being new. There is a lot of good material on Earth2.net, is there not, Dave? Well, exactly, yeah. It's, it's very, very good shows. Exactly. Um, we are a small fish swimming with <laughs> big sharks yeah. in a pond that's we're, very crowded. We're, we're rubbish compared to them. <laughs> we're, we're the web of Earth2.net. <laughs> I can't beat that. <laughs> Day, whilst I regain my composure, Geek Planet Online, what's going on? Well, as uh, mentioned before, there is a uh, slight redesign coming up, and if you go onto the main page in a minute, you'll see a very exciting-looking countdown clock. Ooh. And when the clock gets to zero, the site will either be redesigned or explode. We're not sure. <laughs> but yeah, there's going to be a bit of a reorganisation and everything, And um, but we've also got a couple of new podcasts on the horizon. And the first is by our regular feedbackers, the Reverend Peter Organ and the, his lovely wife, Anne-Marie. Wait a second. Because uh, I, I, doesn't Peter Org already do a Geek Planet podcast? 
Uh, he did used to do News Geek, but that ended up getting rested for uh, various reasons. But yeah. they have done a pilot for, and will be shortly producing, uh, the Borg cast. <laughs> as in B Org cast. It's a clever play on words, in which they will be uh, watching Star Trek: The Next Generation from right. uh, from series two. The reason they're doing it from series two is because um, uh, Org has a column on Geek Planet called Blessed Are the Geek he and does, the last yes. few editions of that he's been uh, re-watching season one of Star Trek The Next Generation when they had the idea of doing the podcast all just couldn't face watching season one again so we, <laughs> they decided you know what we're just going to start on season two but, um, but the, the but, first but episode but sure, is a, surely Anne-Marie has some opinions on season one certainly but all isn't going to sit down, sit down and watch them all again <laughs> just to share his opinions wow but that to, to be fair, their first episode is a um, the, the best and worst of Series 1. So they cover what they think is the best episode of Series 1 and what they think is the worst episode of Series 1. Oh, okay then. So the, uh, Series 1 is being covered, but just in greatly reduced form. <laughs> in brief. Yes, and then they're going to uh, soldier on. So that's going to be uh, launching, hopefully, when the site relaunches. Oh, good. Which is, should be the 12th, if memory serves. I'll have to check the countdown clock. <laughs> <laughs> Nearly by the time this is out. Yeah, pretty much. So yeah, there's there's that to look forward to. And also, uh, hopefully soon, we shall be premiering Tangential Deviation, which will be uh, myself and Mr. Matt Dillon returning to the podcasting arena since the conclusion of the Eclectic Podcast. After many months. Yes, I mean, it, it's an idea that we, we trialled Basically, in um, <laughs> as a during the eclectic podcast, yeah, extensively. Uh, there has been a few tweaks to the format. Okay. Basically, it's going to be we're going to start with a subject. We're going to see where we end up at the end, and then the next episode, our starting subject will be the su subject we finished from the previous podcast, and then we'll yeah. see where we end up from there. So it's a long kind of chain of conversation. Yeah, I mean, basically, if, if you were insane enough, you could stitch the whole thing together and turn it into one long, rambling conversation. Ouch. Yes. <laughs> but we're hoping to have a few, uh, a few, guests, a few guests on there as well. And the fact is, yeah, it's all going to be very, deliberately uninterrupted. It's an uninterrupted 99-minute discussion. <laughs> Why 99 minutes, I hear you ask? Um, I actually know the answer, but um, I'll ask anyway. Why 99 minutes, Dave? That's a very good question. I'm glad you asked me. Because <laughs> that's how long the artificial skin lasts for in Darkman. There we go. So during the entire length of during the length of our discussion, from when we start the clock to the way we finish it, Peyton Westlake could have disguised himself as a drug dealer and fucked some shit up. <laughs> I bet you were going to say, for the entire length of tangential uh, deviation, Liam Neeson will disintegrate. <laughs> Maybe we should have some sort of like representation of the time passing, like a slowly melting Liam Neeson that you can watch <laughs> on the website. But do you remember Nightmare, where they oh, where they had yes. like the helmet that slowly oh, yes. fell to bits? Yeah, like, yeah. It'd be like that, but with Liam Neeson's face. <laughs> There's the thing. I remember Nightmare. I've never actually watched Darkman. Would you believe that, Dave? <laughs> Love film. Love okay, film right now. All right, I'm getting on it. I'm getting on it. Getting on it. <laughs> Done. Priority high. Good. Yes. 
<sighs> right, I think Joe? we definitely need to wind this podcast up now. It's descended into anarchy. I was going to tell you what my uh, current love film things were. Well, what, really... what, what, what is your current love film list? Before we before we send our good listeners home, <laughs> for, presumably for some Alka-Seltzer to lie down. <laughs> it's been a long one. Yes. And that's without them even knowing the behind-the-scenes story. Exactly. <laughs> okay, I will say very quickly, uh, Igby Goes Down and Pontypool. Ah, two, two good choices. One was recommended heavily by Dread Media. The other is Igby Goes Down. Goes Down? <laughs> I was going to say, if I had to pick which one Dread Media <laughs> was recommending... <laughs> I'm not entirely sure like, um, films about uh, sort of public school boys finding themselves through sort of rich, disenfranchised parents and the sort of thing that Des would really be like, throwing his weight behind. Well, you, you don't know Des, clearly. Well, apparently not. <laughs> well, now, Travis, fancy meeting you here. Put the gun down, Avon. It's too late to stop it now. Convince me. Be polite, and I may let you live. Be informative, and I may let you die. You'll want that after I've shot off an arm and a leg or two. I thought you were supposed to be the one with brains. Brains, but no heart. Now talk or scream, Travis. The choice is yours. Next month, we're going to be covering the first two episodes of Series 3 of Blake 7. And those episodes are going to be Aftermath and Power Play. So, until then, from me, Dave Probert. And from myself, Ian Wilson. Thank you for listening to Shaker Blake. <laughs>